Highbridge, a division of recorded books, presents The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton by Jefferson Morley, read by John Pruden. Introduction When I started writing the biography of James Angleton in January 2015, the notion that a deep state shaped American politics was largely unknown. When I finished The Ghost two years later, the term commanded belief from the President of the United States and a near majority of the citizenry. In April 2017, ABC News pollsters asked Americans about the possible existence of a deep state defined as military, intelligence, and government officials who try to secretly manipulate government policy. A plurality of respondents, 48%, agreed while 35% described the idea as a conspiracy theory. The belief in a deep state ran equally strong among Republicans and Democrats. I did not rely on the concept of a deep state in researching Angleton's career, but I wanted to tell his story precisely because I had encountered spectral glimpses of his handiwork in my reporting for the Washington Post and for my first book, Our Man in Mexico. When I finished The Ghost... I realized Angleton and his conspiratorial mode of thinking illuminated the new discourse of the deep state. But how? Among the various theories of the deep state, the only common denominator is the role of the secret agencies created by the National Security Act, what Professor Michael J. Glennon calls double government. Since 1947, Glennon notes, the three branches of the Republican government founded in 1789 have been joined by a fourth branch of military and intelligence organizations, which wield power largely beyond the view of the Madisonian government and the voting public. Whatever the label applied to the national security sector of the U.S. government, Angleton embodied its ascendancy after World War II. Thus, The Ghost is a biography that interrogates today's headlines. Was James Angleton a defender of the Republic, an exemplar of double government, or an avatar of the emerging deep state. This is his story, in so far as it is known. Part 1. Poetry Pound The young American peered through the viewfinder at the naked poet. James Angleton squeezed the shutter once and then again. Ezra Pound went right on talking, as if he didn't care. Jim, as Pound called him, had just come down from Milan. Upon arrival, the Yale man with black hair and high brown cheekbones had spotted the abode of the expatriate poet from the waterfront below. It took some ingenuity to locate the entrance to Number 12 Via Marsala in the narrow cobblestone street around back. He hiked up the darkened stairs to the fifth floor and emerged into the bright light of the terraced apartment, where Pound and his wife, Dorothy, welcomed him like an old friend. In fact, that summer day in 1938 was the first time Jim Angleton and Ezra Pound had met. Pound was 52 years old, Angleton a rising college sophomore and expatriate resident of Italy. He knew of Pound through the crystalline poetry of his books Personae and Cantos, songs in English. He felt something of a personal connection, too. During his freshman year, he had come across a sketch of Pound in a campus magazine above the caption, From Idaho to Rapallo. 
Jim had made that same intercontinental journey. Born in Boise, he had lived there and in Dayton, Ohio, until he was 16 years old, when his family moved to Milan. In the poet's odyssey from Idaho to Italy, Angleton might have seen the arc of possibility in his own life. Angleton was taller than his host. He had a Latin complexion and the lithe build of a soccer player. His English accent announced old-world courtesy and quiet good manners. His piercing dark eyes and the perpetual hint of a smile suggested an ironic approach to life. The couple welcomed Angleton into their neat apartment— Pound, ever alert for potential patrons, knew of Jim's father, a parvenu who ran the Italian-American Chamber of Commerce in Milan. Hugh Angleton was one of the best-known Americans in northern Italy. He mixed easily among the businessmen and officials associated with the government of Benito Mussolini. For Pound, who admired Mussolini, this was recommendation enough. He also supposed that the young Angleton could derive from his teaching a necessary education in the complexities of debt, trade, and paper money, and eventually, the poet may well have calculated, Jim's father might be of some service. For five days in August 1938, Angleton made himself at home with the pounds. He had come in search of greatness and found it. He had read the dense poetry of the Fifth Decade of Cantos, published in 1937. He especially admired an early poem of Pound's Hugh Selwyn Mauberly about the universal beauty of poetry. Angleton knew, too, of Pound's interest in economics, articulated in a series of publications with pedantic titles such as ABC of Economics, Social Credit, and Jefferson and or Mussolini, the latter a frankly laudatory portrait of the Italian fascist leader. Poetry could not be insulated from revolution and money, Pound insisted, so Jim gave close attention to his political writings as well as to his poetry. James Jesus Angleton was born on December 9, 1917, the first of four children of James Hugh Angleton and his wife, Carmen Moreno Angleton. Hugh, as he was known, had grown up in central Illinois, working as a school teacher until he moved to Idaho, where he started out as a candy salesman. He was serving in the Idaho National Guard at a U.S. military post in Nogales, Arizona, when he met Carmen Moreno, born in Mexico, but naturalized as a U.S. citizen. It was, according to one account, a case of love at first sight. The bride was one of the Spanish beauties of Nogales and exceedingly popular. They were married in December 1916 and returned to Boise, where their first child was born, a son. They named him James, and Carmen gave him a Spanish middle name, Jesus, which later he would shun. The Angletons lived in a two-story, two-bedroom bungalow on Washington Avenue in Boise. Hugh took a job as a sales agent for the National Cash Register Company. Social and engaging, he was soon promoted. In 1927, Hugh and Carmen Angleton moved their family to Dayton, Ohio, where Hugh became a vice president of National Cash Register. Jim attended Oakwood Junior High, a public school. In 1933, Hugh bought out NCR's Italian subsidiary and moved the family to Milan, where he opened his own company, selling cash registers and business machines. Suddenly, the candy salesman was a wealthy man. In raising their children, Hugh and Carmen emphasized the importance of education and travel. They sent Jim to Malvern College, an exclusive red-brick boarding school in Worcestershire, England. 
It was there, he said years later, that he learned the importance of duty. His younger brother, Hugh, was sent to Harrow, an even more exclusive English prep school. Carmen, the elder daughter, went to a convent school in Milan and then a girls' school in Switzerland. Dolores, the youngest, would also go to school in England. In the summers, the family reunited in Milan. Angleton's upwardly mobile childhood was formative. By the time he arrived at Yale in September 1937, he had resided in three countries, attended public and private schools, spoke three languages, and had lived in circumstances both modest and luxurious. He was an outdoorsman with advanced tastes in poetry, an athlete with an original mind. He displayed a distinctive social style and, perceptible under the surface, an ambition fueled by the rapid success of his father. After his freshman year at Yale, he returned to Milan for the summer. He called up the American embassy, asking for the address of the expatriate writer Ezra Pound, and he didn't relent until he was given it. Then he wrote straight away. Jim explained he was the photography editor of the Yale Literary Magazine, not mentioning that said journal did not actually publish photographs. Receiving no answer, Jim wrote another letter in longhand ten days later. I want only to get a few spirited ideas from you together with a photo. This plea extracted the desired invitation from the pounds, and so Angleton drove down from Milan to Genoa and then traced the coastal road to Rapallo. In their summer idol, the esoteric master and the voracious schoolboy talked and smoked. Pound doted on the company of disciples, and Angleton was looking for wisdom. Angleton wanted to find coherence in the world, and Pound's mythic poetry offered a place where he could speak a higher language of art. Angleton felt free to wield his camera around the apartment. When they went out onto the apartment's rooftop terrace overlooking the Gulf of Tegulia one overcast day, Pound stood up and stared into the distance. Jim snapped another photo and later gave it to the poet. Pound thought it the best picture of himself that he had ever seen. By the time Angleton got back to New Haven in September, his five days with the world-famous Ezra Pound had become, in the retelling, close to five weeks. In one gulp, Angleton had taken in the surface effects of a worldly education. Pound's reckless ambition, his will to cultural power— his elitism, his conspiratorial convictions, his self-taught craftsmanship, and his omnivorous powers of observation, all these would have influence on the maturing mind of James Angleton. Angleton took a room at 312 Temple Street with his best friend from freshman year, another aspiring poet, Reed Whitmore. Reed had led a more prosaic childhood as a doctor's son in New Haven. Whitmore recommended T.S. Eliot's poem Garantian to his roommate, and Angleton loved it. With its apparent insight into history and its obscure intimations of danger, Eliot's poem foreshadowed the life of adventure to which Angleton would aspire. After such knowledge, what forgiveness? Think now. History has many cunning passages, contrived corridors, and issues, deceives with whispering ambitions, guides us by vanities. Think now. She gives when our attention is distracted, and what she gives, gives with such supple confusions that the giving famishes the craving. He was quite British in his ways, Whitmore said of his friend. He was a mixture of pixiness and earnestness, very much at home in Italian literature, especially Dante, 
as well as the fine points of handicapping horses. Angleton's solitary style was already evident. A student of fly-fishing, he liked to borrow Whitmore's car and drive off to streams in northwestern Connecticut, where he would spend long hours casting for trout. Yet Whitmore said he never saw a single catch. Angleton spoke of visiting a female friend whom he knew from some other life, but Whitmore never saw her either. With his English accent, Italian suits, and lofty manner, he was, in Whitmore's words, a mystery man. Yale College occupied a high position in American intellectual life. Not as patrician as Harvard, nor as provincial as Princeton, Yale served students from a wider range of backgrounds, and it served them differently. The classrooms scattered around the campus in New Haven contained intense islands of scholars, students, and aspiring poets who spoke of a new way of thinking about literature. Angleton, it turned out, had entered one of the more powerful intellectual milieus of mid-century America. Yale was the place where the enduring influence of new criticism began to be felt. The new critics were a cohort of literature professors who converged on Yale in the 1930s. They favored a canon of English poetry centered on Shakespeare, the metaphysical poets of the 17th century led by John Donne, and select moderns such as William Butler Yeats and T.S. Eliot. Angleton took English 10, an introductory course on poetry, fiction, and drama, with Maynard Mack, a young professor who admired Pound's poetry. Mack encouraged Angleton's interest. Mack's undergraduate seminars were presented as laboratories for young literary scientists, the model for research being drawn from two original-minded English critics, I.A. Richards and William Empson. Richards had been an influential lecturer in English and moral sciences at Cambridge University. In 1939, he became a professor at Harvard. Bill Empson was his most gifted student, a mathematician and poet whose undergraduate thesis became a famous work of literary criticism, Seven Types of Ambiguity. In the book, Empson offers an argument, supported by interpretations of poems, for the relationship between verbal ambiguity and imaginative value. From its first publication in 1930, Seven Types of Ambiguity has never gone out of print. Yet at the time, it had not been published in the United States, a neglect that surprised Angleton. When Empson visited Yale, Angleton introduced himself and took the critic out for a long evening of wine and literary talk. He said he would find Empson an American publisher. The new criticism that Angleton treasured was a powerful method, not merely for its insights into poetry— but for its implicitly conservative worldview. It was not value-free. On the contrary, its proponents would argue vigorously that it was a method deeply rooted in a particular set of values, a method, in the final analysis, for promulgating those values. The elevated strictures of the new criticism that exalted his favorite poets would prove formative for Angleton. He would come to value coded language, textual analysis, ambiguity, and close control as the means to illuminate the amoral arts of spying that became his job. Literary criticism led him to the profession of secret intelligence. Poetry gave birth to a spy. Salesman Angleton extracted a fistful of letters from his mailbox in the cramped confines of Yale Station. One of the letters was postmarked Rapallo. When he sliced open the envelope, he had to decipher Ezra Pound's inimitable orthography. Dear Jim, 
All this is very fine and active. How the hell am I to do my own work and take two months off to collect my own bibliography I don't see? Does the Yale Library expect to buy? The poet was steamed that Angleton had not fulfilled his promise of compiling a complete bibliography of Pound's work. Ezra wanted to sell some manuscripts and pay some debts. He was always short of money. By return mail, Angleton responded with flattering familiarity. Dear Ezra, he reported he was reading Confucius's Da Hyo and Pound's opera Cavalcanti. He saved his biggest news for the last page. He and Reed Whitmore were launching a new magazine called Furioso. Would you be the godfather of this? Angleton was pleased to get Pound's response ten days later. Yes, I'll back up any and all the proposals in year's 19th instant, Pound wrote. But we had better think out what will do the job best. The textbook ought to be ready soon. You can quote from advance copy of that. The idea that the great Ezra Pound was sending them a textbook, whatever that was, sounded more than promising. Angleton described himself as a very excited piece of protoplasm. Nonetheless, he was disappointed. No, dismayed, when Pound sent him the long-awaited textbook. It was not a canto. It was not even poetry. It was a list of Pound's favorite quotes about coinage, paper money, and debt from John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and other founding fathers. Angleton wasn't pleased. He wrote to Pound, deflecting the gift and asking for something more literary. Right at this moment, Ezra, we are awaiting a canto or something, Angleton said. We have to have some verse from you. Pound did not answer. With Whitmore's help, Angleton improvised a solution. They dressed up the textbook quotes with some Roman numerals and stashed it at the back of the issue before they went to press. The red-trimmed first issue of Furioso, adorned by an impish devil wielding a switch, was mailed out in May 1939. Costing just 30 cents, the publication was a literary bargain. In its 28 pages, there was Pound's odd contribution and a letter from the poet Archibald MacLeish arguing that the new communications medium of broadcast radio would be the salvation of poetry. Angleton's friend E. E. Cummings, also a known poet, contributed a poem. The soon-to-be-renowned Dr. William Carlos Williams added three more. One canny Yale graduate student named Norman Holmes Pearson was especially impressed with this collection of fresh, arresting literary work. Pearson was a gimpy young man, almost a hunchback. He smoked a pipe and read Sherlock Holmes' detective stories for pleasure, which proved to be good cover for the unlikeliest of spies. Pearson made a point of introducing himself to Angleton. When Yale classes ended in May 1939, Angleton returned to Milan by boat. The ten-day voyage took him from New York to Genoa. A train took him to Milan and a reunion with his parents and siblings. Angleton wrote a letter to Pound asking if he might visit him in Rapallo again. He wanted Pound to meet his father. Hugh Angleton, then fifty years old, was not a poet or a writer. He was a man of business— like Ezra Pound, he admired the ambitions and spirit of Italian fascism. Hugh Angleton was a very tough character, recalled William Gowan, a young army captain who would meet both father and son in Rome a few years later. Jim worshipped his father. Hugh was very aggressive and masculine. Jim was not. Hugh was an outgoing man, solidly built at five foot eleven with serious gray eyes. 
He had installed his family in the Palazzo Castiglione, an Art Nouveau palace in the center of Milan. An extrovert and a fine horseman, he betrayed few traces of the raw western frontier from which he came. In the Italian-American Chamber of Commerce, he cultivated friends, dinner companions, and business partners. In his office on Via Dante, Hugh Angleton received visitors from all over Europe. From friends in manufacturing, he learned about the German arms industry. At the Rotary Club, he talked to financiers and industrialists. As a member of the Knights of Malta, he knew influential Catholics. As a Mason, he drew on his friends in the secretive order to keep himself informed about Italian politics. As a man with connections, Hugh wanted to get to know his son's friend, the great poet who dared to say fascism and Americanism were two sides of the same coin. Angleton gravitated toward Pound's view that Italy and America were not enemies. Hugh didn't disagree. The newspapers brought more foreboding news every day. Armies were mobilizing across Europe. In August 1914, a global war had erupted seemingly out of nowhere. In the summer of 1939, the older generation could sense another cataclysm coming. A few weeks later, on September 1, 1939, Germany invaded Poland and the war in Europe had begun. Two days later, England and France mobilized to fight Germany. Mussolini rallied to Hitler's defense, passing a series of anti-Semitic decrees in November 1939. The United States then sanctioned Italy. Angleton's adopted country was now an enemy of the United States of America. In the fall of 1939, Angleton and Whitmore moved into room 1456 of Pearson College, a pleasant enclosed quadrangle in the heart of the Yale campus. They went to work on the second issue of Furioso, which proved even better than the first, flush with poems from the famous and the promising. Pound's contribution, alas, was again disappointing. Generously titled Five Poems, it consisted of five fragments, alternately whimsical, vulgar, and slight. In his own writing, Angleton had adopted Pound's resentment of Jews and verbal abuse of President Roosevelt. In February 1940, he wrote to Pound, There is a hell of a lot of Rooseveltian shilly-shally here in America. He complained the American press favored London over Berlin. Everything is definitely British, and the Jews cause a devil of a lot of stink. Here in New York will be the next great pogrom. And they do need about a thousand ghettos in America. Jew, Jew, and Jew, even the Irish are losing out. But Angleton did not write to debate politics. He knew Pound was squeezed by wartime financial measures. He wanted to offer money. I talked to Dad on the telephone the day before the war and mentioned the little shekel you might need, say a couple of thousand, and he said okay, Angleton wrote. So I hope you will oblige by writing him and accept it as a favor. Pound responded by return mail, acknowledging Angleton's offer, if not his own acceptance of money. Dear Jim, thanks for your airmail. I am not yet starved to the wall yet, but thanks for the practical intentions in your epistle. Neither, of course, do I have any intention of relapsing into reminiscence of the Celtic twilight during a period when twilight sleep is not, by hell, being used for the birth of a new Europe. Pound had something more important in mind than money a cause. A new, goddammit, new Europe, he wrote, all midwives to hand and ready. As the poet championed the new Europe of Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler, he sought out Hugh Angleton and his generosity. 
Pound wrote him in June 1940. Dear Mr. Angleton, Jim is all head up for fear that I, with poetic imprudence, might have failed to put by a few billetti de mila, meaning he had failed to save a few thousand dollars. I shall eat, even if Morgenthau, Hull, and that ass F.D. Roosevelt have succeeded in having the mails blocked and payment on U.S. checks suspended. In the same letter, he signaled that he was short of funds, at the same time saying that he wished to talk about something more important than my personal affairs. He wanted Hugh Angleton's help in spreading his political views. Time has come when I might be a business asset, wild as the idea would appear, he wrote. I don't mean in an office, but sitting at the seat of news. Pound wanted to be a practical asset to a businessman like Angleton. Within six months, he began to broadcast his commentaries for Radio Rome, the Italian news outlet heard from Sicily to the Pyrenees. What will remain from this struggle is an idea, Pound declared in early 1941. What spreads and will spread from the determination to have a new Europe is an idea, the idea of a home for every family in the country, the idea that every family in the country shall have a sane house, and that means a house well-built with no breeding space for tuberculosis bugs. Pound likened 20th-century European fascism to 19th-century American democracy in its rejection of collectivism. The new Europe, he said, was merely following in the path of the United States. Over the next four years, Pound would deliver more than 120 speeches over Radio Rome, most of them rife with folksy language, images of infestation, historical references, and anti-Semitism, all wrapped in a belligerent spirit of racial chauvinism. Angleton had not been uncomfortable with fascism or fascists at Yale, sometimes to the consternation of his more liberal classmates. Anti-Semitism didn't seem to bother him, but Pound's overwrought vehemence did. As his bright college years came to a close in the spring of 1941, Angleton was ready to graduate from Yale College and the school of Ezra Pound. Apparently, they never corresponded again. Wife One rainy day in September 1941, Cicely Dautremont, Vassar class of 1944, walked down Brattle Street in Cambridge. An impish sophomore from Arizona, she was out on a date with a Yale boy who wanted her to meet a friend who had just started at Harvard Law School. Cicely and the boy climbed up three flights of narrow stairs in an old apartment building. They walked into a bare living room that was unfurnished, save for a reproduction of El Greco's painting, View of Toledo. A tall man stood next to the picture of an unearthly green landscape. How do you do? he said. This first encounter so impressed Cicely Dautremont Angleton that decades later she recalled that moment. If anything went together, it was him and the picture, she told a reporter. I fell madly in love at first sight. I'd never met anyone like him in my life. He was so charismatic. It was as if the lightning in the picture had suddenly struck me. He had an El Greco face. It was extraordinary. Another decade after that disclosure, when Cicely Angleton was a grandmother, she again relived that chance encounter, writing a poem tinged with rueful hindsight. Beware, she warned, of hollow cheeks and auras sketched in lightning. Cicely Dautremont didn't know how to beware of hollow cheeks. 
She was barely more than a schoolgirl born into comfort and privilege. The marriage of her mother and father in 1919 joined two of the wealthiest families in Duluth, Minnesota. Her father Hubert was a scion of the Dautremonts who had vast holdings in mining and lumber. Her mother Helen was a Congdon who had more of the same, in addition to a fabulous mansion. Helen and Hubert moved to Tucson, Arizona, where he became a banker while she was active in charitable work. During the Depression years, the Dautremonts were known as the largest contributors to Tucson charities. Cicely was born in 1922, their second child and first daughter. Cicely was drawn to Angleton's exotic intensity. Jim was a Chicano, and I loved him for it, she said. I never saw anyone as Mexican as he was. He was Latino, an Apache. He was a gut fighter. Angleton did not return Cicely's passion, at least not immediately. In his last year at Yale, Angleton's charmed life had suffered unsettling setbacks. At a time when the U.S. Army was welcoming hundreds of thousands of young men, he was rejected by the Selective Service, probably because of his recurring tuberculosis. Optimistically, he applied to Harvard Law School, despite the fact that his poor grades pulled him down to the bottom quarter of the Yale class of 1941. He was rejected. Angleton's friend Norman Holmes Pearson wrote a letter to Harvard asking them to reconsider. Pearson, then 32 years old, surely qualifies as the most improbable spy master in American history. An assistant literature professor from a prosperous New England family, Pearson had few obvious qualifications for a life of deception and intrigue. He was a genteel man of unobtrusive appearance who walked with a limp, left over from a spinal injury in childhood. He was also a founding spirit of the global enterprise of espionage, propaganda, and violence known as the Central Intelligence Agency. Pearson's letter to Harvard proved convincing, and Angleton was admitted. Reprieved from unemployment, Angleton intended to make good by studying international law and contracts and then going into the family business. He was headed for a career of selling cash registers or perhaps publishing poets. But Norman Pearson wasn't done with him. Pearson, like many other young Ivy League professors, went to war by joining the newly created Office of Strategic Services— the OSS, as it was known, resembled an elite university in its mission to collect and disseminate information. The OSS was the brainchild of William Donovan, a Wall Street lawyer known as Wild Bill for his aerial heroics in World War I. For years, Donovan had been telling his friend Franklin Roosevelt that the rise of Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany meant there would be another war in Europe, one that the United States would have to join. America needed a foreign intelligence service, and probably sooner rather than later, he told FDR. After Pearl Harbor, Donovan had won the argument. The British already had a foreign intelligence agency, the Secret Intelligence Service, SIS, established in 1909, sometimes known as MI6. So the officers of the new American OSS were sent to school at the British Intelligence Facility in Bletchley Park, north of London. There, Pearson joined the SIS men in teaching the novice Americans the arts of espionage and special operations as perfected by the world's greatest colonial power. In law school, Angleton learned the consequences of his friendship with Ezra Pound. The poet's speeches on Radio Rome did not attract a big audience in Italy, nor were they broadcast in the United States. But the Federal Communications Commission in Washington was recording them, and J. Edgar Hoover was listening— 
In his mid-fifties, the FBI director was a heavyset man who favored shiny suits. He had built the Bureau of Investigation, a small office within the Justice Department, into a national police force. In April 1942, Hoover ordered his men to investigate Pound on suspicion of aiding America's enemies. An FBI agent visited Angleton at his Brattle Street flat. Angleton explained he admired Pound's poetry and found his political theories convincing, though distorted by his prejudices against Jews and bankers. Angleton agreed that Pound's radio speeches were incoherent and indefensible. He said he would testify to that effect and provide the names of others who knew Pound. In spring 1943, Angleton was drafted into the Army and passed his physical exam. He identified himself as James Hugh Angleton, Jr., proof that he did not care for his given middle name, Jesus. Though he could have used his father's contacts and become an officer, he chose to begin army life as an enlisted man. He also proposed to Sicily, although Hugh and Carmen disapproved. They didn't know Sicily Dotermont or her family. Jim didn't have a job or professional degree. The couple endured a painful meeting with his parents, but the young lovers did not relent. They set a date for a wedding in July near the army base where Angleton was training. On one of Jim's few days off, he and Cicely got married at a church outside Fort Custer, Michigan, an unromantic beginning to a troubled lifelong commitment. Cicely went back to Arizona, and Jim left on a train eastbound to Washington. Norman Pearson had arranged for him to join the OSS. Before long, he was immersed in another form of basic training, this one in the hills of Maryland. Sixty OSS recruits marched up hills, danced through obstacle courses, and took night compass runs through the woods. The men who passed through the OSS training course became Angleton's colleagues and friends for life. Some came from similarly privileged backgrounds. Frank Wisner, the scion of a wealthy Mississippi family, had attended the University of Virginia. Others were older men of humbler origins, experienced in ways unknown to Angleton's Yale classmates— Winston Scott, a former FBI agent, had grown up in a railroad boxcar in rural Alabama. He had a photographic memory and a Ph.D. in mathematics. Tom Karamasinas was a taciturn lawyer who had worked as a prosecutor in New York City. Bill Colby was a Princeton man and Army paratrooper who would lead sabotage raids in occupied Norway. Dick Helms was a white-shoed Navy lieutenant who had worked as a wire service reporter and once interviewed Adolf Hitler. Angleton would know these men for as long as they lived. Before shipping out to England, the OSS Officers Training Corps passed through what was known as the New York Staging Area for some final polishing, including a course in the art of picking locks. The instructor, a muscular and profane whirlwind named George Hunter White, was a career agent with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. White had met Hugh Angleton and took a liking to his son. George White was as tough a character as Angleton had ever met. The FBN regulated the transshipment of narcotics in both legal and illegal transactions. Working undercover, White relished breaking the law in order to enforce it, a trait Angleton would come to share. He was a new sort of associate for Angleton, a man who expressed himself not with words, but with fists or a gun. There was nothing poetic about him. Angleton and his OSS brothers then sailed to England on a stormy North Atlantic Sea, a stomach-turning ten-day voyage. When he disembarked with the duffel-toting throng at Southampton, Angleton had arrived where he wanted to be, the war front. 
Secretary. The hideous crack of the missile blast jolted the floorboards, shattered the windows, buffeted the typewriters, and drove glass into every cranny of the cramped room at 14 Ryder Street in central London. Not long after, Angleton arrived for work at the OSS headquarters. It was raining hard, and a brisk gale blew through the jagged panes as he went up to the second-floor office. Many nights he slept on a cot by the desk. Luckily, Angleton had spent the previous night elsewhere, a twist of fate that might have saved his life. It was March 1944. Angleton had gone through OSS training school in Bletchley Park, where he was reunited with Norman Pearson, who was responsible for the X-2 indoctrination training of the American arrivals. X-2 served as shorthand for counterintelligence. Pearson also called on a British colleague, Harold Philby, an SIS section chief known to all as Kim, to explain the workings of a wartime intelligence station. After completing his training, Angleton was assigned to the Ryder Street office. The city was under siege from long-range German rockets fired from Flanders across the English Channel. Every day and night, V-2 missiles slammed into apartment blocks, office buildings, pubs, churches, and schools around the city, killing randomly and terrorizing generally. Angleton's secretary, Perdita McPherson, found him stamping around the drafty, shattered office in his overcoat. Angleton swept the glass off his chair and sat down to work. Jim Angleton learned the craft of counterintelligence from two masters, Norman Pearson and Kim Philby. Pearson was the more intellectual of the two. Now living in England, he liked nothing more than to spend his Sundays sipping tea in the flat of his friend Hilda Doolittle, the poet known as H.D., the rest of the week, he taught the subtle arts of counterintelligence, defined as information gathered and activities conducted to protect against espionage, sabotage, or assassinations conducted for or on behalf of foreign powers, organizations, or persons. Angleton would prove to be his most brilliant student. Kim Philby was more of a rising civil servant. He had grown up in a well-to-do and well-traveled family. His father, Harry St. John Philby, had parlayed his livelihood as an Anglo-Indian tea planter into a career as a confidant to the royal family of Saudi Arabia. His son, Kim, was educated at Cambridge and dabbled in journalism before joining the Secret Service in 1940. From the start, Philby distinguished himself from his more conventional colleagues with the casual wardrobe, incisive memoranda, and a mastery of Soviet intelligence operations in Spain and Portugal. He taught Angleton how to run double-agent operations, to intercept wireless and mail messages, and to feed false information to the enemy. Angleton would prove to be his most trusting friend. Angleton had found a calling and a mentor. Once he met Philby, the world of intelligence that had once interested him consumed him. He had taken on the Nazis and the fascists head-on and penetrated their operations in Spain and Germany, he said. His sophistication and experience appealed to us. Kim taught me a great deal. So did Norman Pearson. He imparted to Angleton his knowledge about one of the most significant activities housed at Bletchley Park, Ultra, the code-breaking operation that enabled the British to decipher all of Germany's military communications and read them in real time. By May 1944, the British believed they had, for perhaps the first time in modern military history, a complete understanding of the enemy's intelligence resources. Pearson also sat on the committee that decided how to use the ultra-information. 
he was let in on another even more closely held British secret, the practice of doubling certain German agents to feed disinformation back to Berlin so as to shape the thinking and the actions of Hitler's generals. It was a subtle, dirty game that Pearson shared with Angleton. The Germans had infiltrated dozens of spies into England with the mission of stealing information, identifying targets, and reporting back to listening posts on the continent. When the British captured one of the German spies, they would double him, that is, compel him to send back a judicious mixture of false and accurate data, which would give the Germans a mistaken view of battlefield reality. In the run-up to the Normandy invasion of June 1944, the British had manipulated the Germans into massing their troops away from the selected landing point. The deception enabled the Allied armies to land at Normandy and start their drive toward Paris with the German resistance in disarray. Angleton was learning how deception operations could shape the battlefield of powerful nations at war. Perdita McPherson had already started working at the OSS offices on Ryder Street when Angleton turned up late one winter afternoon. He looked lean and taut with the long-distance runner's build, she thought. He had cavernous cheekbones and black hair. After a cursory hello, he flung open files and drawers and started pulling out, leafing, and thumbing through papers. He had marvelous hands, she noticed, long, nervous, and expressive. Perdita found him to be sensitive and knowledgeable and demanding. He proceeded to dictate a report of immense length, depth, and complexity, she remembered, leaning back in his chair, leaping up suddenly to pace like a panther. He quoted poetry to strengthen an argument, to dramatize a point. McPherson liked Angleton, and she loved her job. The Yanks and Brits, the servicemen and civilians, SIS and OSS, all brisk banter and good cheer, working together in cramped quarters, going about their business of defeating the bloody Nazis. One of them was Angleton's friend, the affable Kim Philby, clad casually in a leather bomber jacket and exuding bonhomie with an endearing stammer. A real charmer, she recalled decades later. So calm, so reliable. As the head of the X-2 Italy desk, Angleton was cleared for ultra-material. He sent coded messages to the OSS station in Rome. With McPherson's help, he prepared targeting material to be used as Allied forces entered the city of Florence in September 1944. The result, one memo noted, was the speedy liquidation of a prearranged set of CE counterespionage targets, 16 in all. Angleton had become a lethal man. In the face of danger, he was unmoved. After the Allied invasion at Normandy, the Germans stepped up their Blitz of London with buzz bombs, also known as doodlebugs, which announced their imminent arrival with a sizzling sound that suddenly ceased as the bomb fell toward its target. Whatever the name, the worst thing yet, Perdita McPherson recalled. Whenever one of them sputtered to a halt, my heart stopped. My typewriter stopped, too. After the ensuing explosion, Angleton would look up at her quizzically and ask, is anything the matter? Angleton took a dim view of the females of the species, she noticed. He censured my feminine traits as he saw them, she recalled. Lack of dedication, subjective thinking, faulty logic, and my problems, my endless problems. Why did I have so many problems? One day Angleton opined that Perdita wasn't working hard enough. Exasperated by the endless hours at the office, followed by standing online to get a stale loaf of bread, she exploded. I told him I'd been fighting this war longer than he had, she recalled, that I was tired of counter-espionage, 
and just plain tired. Perdita took a holiday with friends in Cornwall, wondering what kind of reception might be awaiting her when she returned to Ryder Street. She was surprised. Jim was a person transformed, she said. Luminous, effulgent. He hugged me and spun me all around. Sicily had borne him a son. The rest of our days hummed along in sunny warmth. His commission came through. I had a spruce new lieutenant on my hands, as well as a new father. He was posted to Rome. Black Prince Angleton hurried up to the villa in Milan. Accompanying him toward the safe house was an Italian friend, Captain Carlo Racio, a trusted naval officer, and a new acquaintance, Prince Junio Valerio Borghese. A commanding man, not yet forty years old, with a bold nose and a knowing squint in his eye, Borghese was perhaps the most famous fascist military commander in Italy. All three men knew that Borghese's life was in danger. It was May 11, 1945, and the world was changing fast. Franklin Roosevelt had been dead for a month, Benito Mussolini for two weeks, Adolf Hitler for less than two. Germany had just surrendered three days before to the Allied forces of the United States and Great Britain. In northern Italy, the leftist partisans of the Committee for the Liberation of Italy were calling on the people to vanquish the fascists. Retribution was coming swiftly. Bodies were appearing in the streets of Milan. Angleton, at 27 years of age, was canny and well-trained, already a student of power. He would later insist that he did not care for Borghese's fascist ideas, only for the tangible assistance he gave the U.S. government, a distinction that would prove not to make much of a difference. The three men entered the villa and closed the door behind them. Unio Valerio Borghese, Angleton's companion that day, was one of the few standouts in Italy's feckless military performance in World War II. He came from a family with a storied name and a dissipated fortune. As a young man, Borghese was inspired by Mussolini's march on Rome in 1922, which brought the fascist party to power. He joined the Navy, married a countess, and became a submarine commander. He fought with Generalissimo Francisco Franco in the Spanish Civil War, where his prowess in clandestine naval warfare won him the command of the prestigious Tenth Light Flotilla, also known as Decimamas. When Italy entered World War II, Borghese pioneered the use of speedboats, midget submarines, and frogmen. He had even planned an attack on U.S. ships in New York Harbor. When Rome capitulated to the incoming Allied forces in September 1943, Mussolini retreated north under the protection of the German army. Borghese joined him. He converted the maritime Decimamas to a land-based fighting force. Thousands rallied under his banner, responding to his creed of God, home, and family. By the end of 1944, the Decimamas had more than 10,000 men under arms. The motto of the Decimamas was MAS, Memento Audere Semper, Remember Always to Dare. Borghese dared to defend the Nazis. When General Karl Wolf, the German commandant for the region, directed Borghese to launch a war of reprisals against the partisans, Borghese obliged without hesitation or pity. In the village of Borgo Ticino on August 18, 1944, a lieutenant under Borghese's command announced the Decimamas response to a partisan attack on a convoy that killed three German soldiers. He wanted four Italians killed for every dead German, and he selected his victims at random from the town's residents. To underscore his point, 
the lieutenant decided to add a thirteenth man on a whim. All were executed on the spot. For the Dechimamasa's promiscuous reliance on torture, rape, looting, summary executions, and collective punishment, Borghese gained a title he did nothing to discourage, the Black Prince. It was in wartime Rome that the legend of James Angleton was born. Assuming command responsibilities for OSS counterintelligence, he made an immediate impression. His mission was daunting. Occupied Italy had to be cleansed of German informants left behind by the Zitcherheitsdienst, the intelligence agency of the Nazi Party and sister organization of the more notorious Gestapo. It was Angleton's job to identify, catch, and interrogate so-called line-crossers, German spies who sought to collect order-of-battle information on the advancing Allied forces. From London, the reliable Kim Philby kept him supplied with the all-important Bletchley Park decrypts of what the German High Command was planning. His father's contacts helped. Hugh Angleton had taken his family back to the United States in December 1941 to escape the coming war. He enlisted in the U.S. Army's School of Military Government in Virginia, which was planning for the occupation of Italy and Germany. Hugh Angleton was assigned to the staff of General Mark Clark, the commander of the U.S. invasion of Italy. He returned to Italy with the U.S. invasion forces in August 1943. After the Royalist government surrendered in September 1943 and Mussolini fled north, the Americans took control of the southern part of the country. Hugh Angleton, calling on friends in business and government, served as an OSS representative in discussions with leaders of the Italian military, intelligence services, and police. The American collaboration with the elements connected to the fascist party and regime, court prefects, police chiefs, and local leaders, was part of a deliberate choice made by the Allies to create conservative coalitions to oppose Italy's left-wing political factions, especially the communists and the labor movement. In his new job, Angleton followed his father's political path. In Rome, Angleton worked out of a three-story office building on the Via Sicilia that also housed the offices of the British SIS and U.S. Army Counterintelligence. In OSS Communications, his codename was Artifice. From the ultra-intercepts, he knew the Germans were planning to retreat north and leave their Italian allies behind in strategic centers. Other information suggested that Valerio Borghese would be responsible for the organization that the Nazis were leaving behind. Angleton crafted a scheme he called Plan Ivy to dismantle the German intelligence and sabotage networks north of Florence. The plan relied on Captain Racio, a frigate commander and top official in the Italian Naval Intelligence Agency. Angleton gave him the seaworthy codename Salty. Racio provided Angleton with an understanding of what Borghese and his Dechimamas shock troops wanted. His salty reports dealt primarily with two themes. One was the threat of communist insurgency in northern Italy and the Soviet Union's support for the same. The other, the existence of a fascist residue that had to be excised from the otherwise worthy leadership of the Italian security services. When Angleton sent these reports to X2 headquarters in London, the response was dubious. The Soviet Union was an ally against the German-Italian axis. The Italian Navy's intelligence service, his colleagues cautioned, had long been considered royalist and anti-Soviet. Therefore, it seems possible that this information may well be in the nature of a propaganda plant. Angleton disagreed. 
Plan Ivy was just one aspect of the OSS effort to disable and dismantle the German and Italian intelligence networks on behalf of the Allied armies. From the OSS station in Bern, Switzerland, Alan Dulles, a former State Department official turned Wall Street attorney, had opened private lines of communication in early 1945 with General Wolf about the possibility of surrender. Dulles, an amoral pipe-smoking schemer, had long experience with and high regard for a number of German businessmen and financiers. Dulles regarded the rise of the Nazis as an unfortunate aberration that should not taint the reputation of the good Germans who did not support them. While President Franklin Roosevelt and Prime Minister Winston Churchill were insisting on unconditional Nazi surrender, Dulles had a different idea, a separate peace with responsible Germans to end the war more quickly. If Wolf and others broke with Hitler and ceased fighting, Dulles intimated they would be treated well by the victorious Allies. Dulles called it Operation Sunrise. It was designed to blunt the advance of communist forces in Europe. The Soviet army was advancing from the east toward Austria. Communist-led partisans were vanquishing the fascist regimes in the Balkans, and they were surging in Italy. Dulles predicted that Hitler and his most loyal followers would retreat to Bavaria, where they would fight to the end. Angleton followed Dulles's lead. Around February 1945, Angleton later recalled, the OSS learned from very reliable sources that the Nazi regime was setting up a plan for the creation of a last zone of resistance in Austria, after the complete destruction of northern Italy by its retreating troops. This scorched-earth policy, which would have cost Italy all her ports, her factories, and her lines of communication, was intended to create a revolutionary situation which could have resulted in an encounter between the Soviets and the Western Allies from which Hitler hoped to profit. The goal of Angleton's Plan Ivy was to convince Borghese not to join in any plans for a scorched-earth retreat. If the Dechimamas commander and his men were spared the ignominy of surrender, northern Italy would not be raised. To make contact with Borghese, Angleton chose commander Antonio Marcellia, a former member of the Dechimamas. Marcellia relayed Angleton's offer to Borghese. If he agreed to cooperate with the Allies and line up his units to prevent the Germans from blowing up the port, he would be saved from the partisans who planned to gun him down in the streets of Milan. Borghese warily agreed. He provided the Americans with detailed maps of explosive mines laid in the port of Livorno. Then he surrendered, or, as he preferred to put it, demobilized. The men of the Decimamas laid down their arms and flag at five o'clock on the afternoon of April 26, 1945, in a ceremony in their barracks at Fiume Square in Milan. Suddenly, the fascist collapse came faster and was uglier than anyone had expected. Angleton had received the sickening news at his office in Rome. Benito Mussolini, his mistress Clara Petacci, and three of his top men were dead, captured by the partisans at Lake Como, and executed. To prove the fascists were truly dead, the partisans had brought their bodies back to Milan and strung them up by their feet from the latticed roof of the Esso gas station at Piazzala Loreto, a bustling traffic circle not far from the heart of the city. Soon jeering crowds gathered to desecrate the upside-down bodies of the dead dictator, his mistress, and their friends. The location was personal for Angleton. The Piazzala Loreto was located less than ten minutes from the Angleton home in Milan. Angleton might have filled up the family car at the gasoline pumps of that Esso station. 
Angleton summoned Recio and drove north with a contingent of U.S. soldiers as bodyguards. On May 9th, he met with Borghese and delivered a friendly message. Admiral de Corten, commander of Allied forces in Italy, wanted him to come to Rome. Angleton felt that Borghese had fulfilled his end of the Operation Sunrise bargain. Besides, the partisans had discovered where he was staying and would soon come to get him. Borghese was wary of a trick, but had little choice. Trust this earnest American, or wind up as a public carcass like his friends Benito and Clara. Angleton was a man in demand. On the night of May 11, 1945, he had a dinner date he could not break. He had previously invited a British colleague to have supper at the villa. Angleton did not want to cancel, so he installed Borghese and Recio elsewhere in the villa and returned to prepare the table for his visitor. His guest had just returned from the surrender negotiations between the Allies and the Germans. Among other things, Angleton recounted later, my guest told me that he had asked the Germans to bring him the fascist ringleaders, Valerio Borghese and Colonel De Leo. The British planned to question the men, his guest said, and then hand them over to the partisans for immediate execution. Angleton had to swallow his alarm as he ate. He said nothing of Borghese's whereabouts to his guest, even though the man the British wanted was sitting nearby. The two men finished their meal, and Angleton bade his friend farewell. The next morning, Angleton dressed the fascist Borghese in an American serviceman's uniform as they drove south. In Rome, Angleton installed Borghese in an OSS safe house on Via Archimedes. On May 19, 1945, Borghese was formally arrested and taken to the Allied military base in Caserta, south of Rome, where prosecutors for the war crimes tribunals were gathering evidence. Someone in the OSS, perhaps Angleton himself, arranged for Borghese's arrest record to be falsified so the Italian government would not learn that he was in custody. As Angleton later explained, he had saved Borghese's life because he thought the U.S. government had a long-term interest in retaining his services. Borghese, never charged with the war crimes of the Decima Mas, would be convicted of lesser offenses and released in 1949. He and his wife were the only fascists of the period who were formally rescued by the authority of the U.S. government. Thanks to Angleton, Borghese survived to become titular and spiritual leader of post-war Italian fascism. Angleton's approach can be best understood by the implementation of what might be called total counter-espionage, wrote historian Timothy Naftali. He believed that a counter-espionage service had to have an insatiable appetite for information about foreign activities so as to be in a position to restrict, eliminate, or control the ways by which other states collected their intelligence. Imbued with fascist sympathies and anti-communist passion, Angleton channeled his convictions into Anglo-American hegemonic ambition. With the analytic skills forged in Yale literary criticism and secret intelligence training imparted by the British SIS, he had unique aspirations. Angleton was intent on nurturing an intelligence network in service of the new American millennium. Recruiting the Black Prince was just the beginning. Nazi Eugen Dolman sat in a darkened, empty cinema as the matinee romance Kisses You Dream Of flickered on the screen. It was another leisurely, lonely day in the life of a dapper man who had preened for the popping flashbulbs at fashionable events in Rome society throughout the 1930s, 
With his impeccable Italian and native German and ingratiating personality, Dolman had flourished as a translator in the decade when Mussolini's Social Republic and Adolf Hitler's Third Reich made common cause. These days, Herr Dolman could not be quite so outgoing. His membership in the SS, the Schutzstaffel, Protection Squadron of the Nazi Party, was sufficient cause for his immediate arrest. Just five years before, he had sat between Mussolini and Hitler as they traveled in German-occupied Russia. Now he sat in the darkness of the cinema between two empty seats. There was a firm hand on his shoulder and a quiet voice in his ear. Kindly leave the cinema with me. Outside, the man, a plain-clothes detective, showed a badge. Dolman said there must be some mistake. Two armed carabinieri boxed him in and pushed him toward a waiting car. Dolman said that he was Alfredo Cassani, an employee of the American government. What was the problem? The three men took Dolman to a holding room in a nearby police station. A pudgy American in a military uniform entered, trailed by a young soldier. The officer introduced himself as Major Leo Pagnota, Deputy Chief of the 428th U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps. The soldier was a 20-year-old CIC special agent, William Gowan. He had grown up in Italy, and his father was an aide to Myron Taylor, President Roosevelt's personal emissary to the Vatican. Decades later, Gowan still remembered the conversation. "'I am Cassini,' said Dolman, proffering his papers again. I think you're Dolman. Pagnota shrugged. He returned the document with barely a glance. He didn't care for forgeries, no matter how faithful. As their exchanges wore on without much emotion or resolution, Dolman reconsidered his dwindling options. Finally, he extracted a piece of paper from his pocket and handed it to Pagnota. Please call this number, he said in an altered tone. Ask for Major Angleton. He knows who I am. By the end of 1946, Jim Angleton had risen to the top of U.S. intelligence activities in Italy. He had survived President Harry Truman's abrupt abolition of the OSS without much disruption of his duties. His authority was growing. In September 1945, the World War was over and America had to build a new peace. The new president agreed with the critics who warned that the OSS, as a secret intelligence agency, could turn into an American version of the Gestapo, the German police force that had repressed the opposition to Hitler. The overseas stations and personnel of the OSS were transferred overnight to the War Department. Angleton's work did not change much, but his cryptonym did. Artifice was now addressed in the cable traffic as Major O'Brien. Angleton and his staff at the Via Sicilia office were expected to monitor local political activities, especially those of the Communist Party, and to gather evidence for the war crime trials of the Nazis. Angleton preferred the former to the latter. Life was returning to normal for the Angleton family. For the first time since 1941, they were all living in Italy. Hugh and Carmen chose to resettle in Rome, where Hugh returned to selling business machines. Jim's younger sister, Carmen, who had helped continue publication of Furioso during the war, came to Rome and soon acquired a fiancé, Ernest Hauser, a journalist from Germany. They would be married in January 1947. Brother Hugh had graduated from Yale and would marry a Polish woman. 
The youngest of the Angleton siblings, Dolores, was headed for preparatory school in England. Hugh Angleton wanted his son to resign his government job and take over the family business. Hugh told Jim the business would enable him to take care of Sicily and their son, Jamie, who were living with Sicily's parents in Tucson. Angleton had other plans. He would not leave secret intelligence work. Ezra Pound was now confined to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in southeast Washington. His radio speeches had resulted in an indictment for treason. In the last days of the war, he was arrested by U.S. military police in Rapallo and taken back to the United States for trial. His literary friends persuaded him to plead insanity, and he was committed to the hospital instead of prison. Angleton still appreciated Pound as an artist, but thought he was mad. Pound probably had the finest ear as far as the English language is concerned, Angleton told a journalist many years later, but he never stayed with one style and developed it. He was an innovator, but he had a philosophy which didn't really hang together. The fact he called one book Personae or Masks is reflective of his poetry and the different facades that he had. I don't think anyone ever took Pound's politics seriously. Of course, Angleton had taken Pound's politics seriously, at least as an undergraduate, and he still thought fondly of the man. In drawing up a will in 1948, he would bequeath a bottle of spirits to his friend, the incarcerated poet. In October 1945, Angleton met Alan Dulles and his wife Clover for the first time. After the abolition of the OSS, Dulles left Switzerland for a holiday in Rome. He wanted to vet the precocious young man who had so ably assisted in Operation Sunrise. They met at the Hotel Hassler, and it didn't take long for Dulles to appreciate the reflexes he saw at work in this gaunt young man. He had a passionate meticulousness, exemplified by what one chronicler called his instinct to chew something twice and taste it three times. Allen and Clover Dulles found Angleton immensely attractive. Angleton was not happy in marriage. Back in Arizona, Sisley was lonely and frustrated. She was living at her parents' shady estate in the heart of Tucson, raising Jamie. When Angleton returned to the United States for a two-week consultancy about the future of U.S. intelligence, his reunion with Sicily was dismal. It was exactly what his father had warned us about in 1943, Sicily said later. Jim no longer cared about our relationship. He just wanted to get back to Italy, to the life he knew and loved. He didn't want a family. Cicely began to compile reasons for a divorce. She blamed herself for making him miserable, but in their misery, the young couple did not know how to separate. They stayed in the family guesthouse and fought. He returned to Rome. She remained in Tucson. She'd had an awful war, losing both of her brothers during the course of 1944. Her elder brother, Charles Dutremont, a sailor on a U.S. warship, was killed in a German bombing raid in February 1944. Her other brother, Hugh, not yet 20 years old, died 10 months later. With baby Jamie underfoot and her husband missing in action, Cicely filed for divorce in June 1946. Then she discovered she was pregnant again. She dropped divorce proceedings and settled for the company of her own thoughts. In time, she would become the poet of the family, not Jim. Late in life, she composed two books of poems about old age, nature, and youth, suffused with intimate details of a troubled marriage. 
Not yet thirty years old, Cicely was a wife and mother, but lonely as a little girl. Angleton's office was the seat of his incipient empire. He had taken on a deputy, an OSS officer named Ray Roca, who was competent, loyal, and handy with a pistol. Roca would work with Angleton for the next thirty years. Angleton told Norman Pearson he had already amassed more than fifty informants in seven intelligence services. Angleton even penetrated his office neighbors in the Army Counterintelligence Corps. Captain Mario Broad, the commanding officer of the CIC unit in Palermo, became an OSS informant. Thanks to Broad, Angleton gained a connection to the American Mafia, which he would find useful in the years to come. With regard to Angleton's liaison with the Italian security forces, one superior said it was spectacularly productive. Angleton remained in touch with Kim Philby, who paid an unannounced visit to Rome not long after the liquidation of the OSS. They stayed up late talking about matters both professional and personal. Angleton admitted he was worried about his marriage. Philby, a father of four and now married for the second time, was the voice of experience. He helped me think it through, Angleton recalled. Angleton was not surprised when Major Pagnota called about Dolman. Some seven months earlier, Angleton had learned from one of his Vatican contacts that two known Nazis, Eugen Dolman and Eugen Venner, had escaped from a minimum security British detention camp. They had taken refuge in a hospital outside Milan. Angleton knew of Dolman. He had represented General Wolf in the secret surrender talks with Dulles in early 1945, thus preparing the way for the culmination of Operation Sunrise. Angleton feared Dolman's arrest might be a propaganda coup for the communists. Dulles had always claimed that he had not violated FDR's policy of unconditional surrender and denied promising leniency to Nazis like Wolf and Dolman. In fact, Dolman had received American help after the war and might testify to that effect if brought to trial. Angleton sent a car to Milan to fetch Dolman and Venner and bring them back to Rome in order to keep them quiet. When Angleton met Dolman in person, he asked for his help. You see, for us of the American Secret Service, the struggle against communism is only just beginning, he said, according to Dolman. He proposed Dolman take a six-week course and then build up a really good espionage organization against the Russians. Dolman objected that his reputation as a Nazi might inhibit his usefulness in Germany. Angleton waved him off. We're the masters of the world, he said. No one can touch you. Dolman disdained Angleton. He was talking like a young university lecturer who dabbled a bit in espionage in his spare time, he said later. But he didn't disdain Angleton's offer of money, identification papers, and a place to stay in Rome. Leo Pagnota, the Army CIC investigator, and Bill Gowan, the special agent, paid a visit to Dolman's residence on Via Archimedes. The man who answered the door was Oigon Venner, who had also played a role in the Operation Sunrise negotiations. Pagnota asked about the third man living in the apartment. Venner replied that he was traveling. He was Walter Ralph, another former SS commander who had worked as adjutant to General Wolf in northern Italy. Ralph had also helped design the Black Raven gas wagons that predated the gas chambers as the method for the mass killing of Jews. An estimated 250,000 people died in Ralph's mobile killing machines. 
U.S. war crimes prosecutors were determined to bring Ralph to trial. Thanks to Angleton, Ralph lived as a free man for the rest of his life. We couldn't believe Angleton put these men up in a safe house, Bill Gowan said. It was inexplicable. When Ponyota informed Angleton that Dolman was wanted for questioning about war crimes, Angleton had to acquiesce in his detention. Italian prosecutors probed Dolman's possible role in the 1943 Ardiatina cave massacres in which the Nazis executed 335 Italian prisoners of war. After the authorities absolved Dolman of involvement, Angleton resumed his effort to secure his release. When Pagnotta returned to civilian life in the United States in the spring of 1947, Angleton was free to act. As Major O'Brien, he visited Dolman in his squalid jail cell and gave him 500 Swiss francs. He then supervised a team of agents who spirited Dolman from the premises on a stretcher. Dolman was whisked off to the U.S. military base in Frankfurt, Germany. In October 1947, he was given another small cash payment and a new set of valid identification papers and was released on the condition that he report weekly to U.S. officials. Dolman continued to serve as a CIA source for at least five more years while writing a memoir of life in Nazi Rome that sold well. In 1951, he was arrested for a homosexual tryst with the Swiss man. Unnamed CIA officials arranged for him to escape back to Italy. When Dolman attempted in 1951 to pass off a batch of forged Nazi documents as authentic, the CIA cut him off. Angleton's rescue of Eugen Dolman was far from the most important intelligence operation he ran in Rome after the war, but it was one of the most revealing. As with the Black Prince, Angleton said sparing the Nazi translator from justice was a matter of honor. Monsignor By 1947, well-placed Americans in Italy were saying sotto voce, that young Jim Angleton had great sources in the Vatican. Some went so far as to say he was meeting on a weekly basis with Monsignor Giovanni Battista Montini, the Vatican's undersecretary of state for Italian affairs. Angleton did not boast of such connections. It was his job to know what was going on in Italian politics, and he made sure he did. The relationship between the Monsignor and the American spy was more transactional than spiritual. Baptized as a Catholic and raised as an Episcopalian, Angleton acknowledged Jesus Christ as his Savior. His meetings with Montini concerned more earthly matters. Montini was a dark, slim, self-effacing man, the son of a lawyer. One U.S. intelligence report described him as the most authoritative person in the Vatican, not the least because of his daily personal contact with Pope Pius XII. The lessons Angleton learned when he met with Monsignor Montini taught him certain timeless truths about the management of power. Yesterday's war criminal was today's asset. If the world was indifferent to the fate of the Jews, the Jews would return the favor. On the grounds of the Vatican, Angleton learned the religion of realism. He refused to rank ideologies of America's adversaries in terms of morality. Angleton put his principles into practice— when Montini learned that U.S. Army CIC investigators were asking questions about certain Croatian fascists sought by the Allied war crimes tribunals, the Monsignor complained to Angleton. The Croatians were steadfast in their support for the Church and in their rejection of communistic atheism. 
They were also notorious for massacring Jews and looting the banks of Zagreb. When the Nazis withdrew from southeastern Europe, their local allies fled to the relative safety of Rome. The CIC men thought Montini might be sheltering the Croatians at the San Girolamo Seminary, located a mile from the Vatican and they suspected that the Croatians' loot, in the form of gold coins stolen from state banks and dead Jews, might be stashed nearby. Through an inside agent, William Gowan was able to copy the registration books listing visitors to the various Vatican properties. A check of CIC files found that 20 of the men hosted by the Vatican were suspected war criminals. Gowan reported the information to his superiors with the copy to Angleton. In return, he received an order from Joe Green, Angleton's friend at the U.S. Embassy. The CIC was to stand down. The Croatians were an Italian, not American responsibility. Gowan concluded that Angleton, as a favor to Montini, had thwarted the CIC's plans to arrest the Croatians and seize their ill-gotten gains. Angleton was way too smart to put it in writing, Gowan said. He had other people do it. The powerful Soviet-American alliance that had crushed Hitler's Reich in a colossal pincer move in 1945 evaporated in just two years. The two victorious powers were now bristling rivals confronting each other across Europe from the Baltic Sea to the Balkan Mountains. In every country where the war had been fought, local communist parties were bidding for power. Even the most remote conflicts became part of a new global struggle between West and East— the U.S. government mobilized for a Cold War. In March 1947, President Truman announced the United States would support the royalist government in Greece, which had collaborated with the Nazis against the communists who had fought them. Truman pledged the United States would support free peoples who were resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. The United States would also help rebuild the economy of its European allies under a plan announced by Secretary of State George Marshall in a speech given at Harvard in June 1947. In July, Congress approved the National Security Act, which created the new Central Intelligence Agency. The CIA was charged with coordinating intelligence collection activities, advising the newly created National Security Council in the White House and distributing finished intelligence to other agencies. President Truman reversed his opposition to a peacetime intelligence agency and signed the act. But Truman insisted on language banning CIA operations on U.S. soil, reiterating that he did not want an American Gestapo. To insulate the new agency from political pressures, a military man, Admiral Roscoe Hillencotter, was brought on to serve as director. The National Security Act empowered the CIA to take on such other functions and duties related to intelligence affecting the national security, an ambiguous phrase whose meaning was well understood in Washington. The other functions the CIA was to perform were purposely not specified, admitted Clark Clifford, an aide to Truman, but we understood that they would include covert activities. In November 1947, Angleton was summoned back to Washington to join the agency. He was soon installed in a 10-by-12-foot room in offices housed in a series of ramshackle huts lining the reflecting pool in front of the Lincoln Memorial, in the heart of Washington. These shabby white buildings, which had sprouted during the war, were known as tempos, as in temporary. 
They were drafty in winter and torpid in summer, and devoid of charm year-round. Angleton arrived just in time for the very first presidentially authorized CIA mission. On December 14, 1947, Truman issued directives NSC-4A, placing responsibility for psychological warfare with the CIA. The priority was Italy, where the communists were strong. Truman ordered deployment of all practicable means to shore up the pro-American Christian Democrats, including overt measures such as an effective U.S. information program and covert measures such as the use of unvouchered funds, the preferred euphemism for untraceable cash bribes. Within the CIA, the Office of Special Operations, OSO, responsible for espionage and counterespionage, was assigned to carry out the president's orders. Angleton's job title was Chief of Operations for Staff A, which handled OSO's foreign intelligence gathering. He inherited the files of the OSS X-2 and assigned the task of sorting and filing them to a former Army intelligence officer named Bill Hood. Hood was impressed by Angleton's mastery of mundane detail. Angleton, he noted, established and codified practices for clearing agents and for reporting on operations that would soon become standard procedure and would remain so for decades. Angleton's cerebral approach annoyed one of his new colleagues, Bill Harvey, the chief of Staff C, which was responsible for counterintelligence. William King Harvey was a pudgy, goggle-eyed cop who had graduated at the top of his class from the University of Indiana Law School. He had made himself into the FBI's expert on the Soviet Union's extensive intelligence activities in America. After the war ended, Harvey had identified a network of supposedly loyal Americans, including a handful from the OSS, who were actually reporting to Moscow. Harvey's drinking got him in trouble with J. Edgar Hoover in 1947, so he joined the newly created CIA. Harvey came to the job with a fund of knowledge about Soviet espionage unmatched anywhere in the U.S. government. He did not think much of Angleton, at least not at first. Their styles contrasted. Harvey had grown up in the same small Midwestern town as his father and grandfather. Angleton had grown up all over America and Europe. Harvey collected firearms. Angleton constructed fishing lures. Angleton shambled along like a professor late to a lecture. Harvey walked with the stiff gait of a military man on patrol. They were prototypes of two strains of spies, OSS veterans and FBI exiles, who came together to share the higher calling of the CIA. One journalist who knew them both wrote that Harvey was a man of action, heeding a call to glory. Angleton, he said, was a man of ideas, following a path to power. No sooner had Angleton started to settle in Washington than his bosses sent him back to Italy. He was simply too knowledgeable and capable to be kept in Washington. The Italian Communist Party was already running strong in the campaign leading up to the April elections, which would determine the structure of the country's first post-war government. The sense that Italy was on the brink of civil war was pervasive in the American press. Italy faces her worst crisis, proclaimed Look magazine, the Communist Party is extending its gains every day as poverty and hunger grip the nation. The opposition to communism is also stiffening with the promise of American aid, but the resistance may not be strong enough. In his quest to make sure the Partito Comunista Italiano, or PCI, did not come to power, 
Angleton knit together friends, allies, and agents into a formidable action network. He could call on the Italian security forces, the Vatican, his father's associates in the business world, fraternal allies in the Knights of Malta, as well as contacts in the British and French secret services. To stem the communist tide, Angleton proposed raising $300,000 in private funds for radio and newspaper advertising and for the personal expenses of anti-communist candidates. It wasn't enough. His bosses in Washington authorized tapping of the captured assets of the defeated Axis powers to pay for political action in Italy. $10 million was put into an account for CIA use. A meeting was arranged at the Hotel Hassler. A satchel stuffed with millions of lira was passed from the Americans to their local allies. With U.S. money pouring into Italy for the purposes of defeating communism, Monsignor Montini had his reward. He was given control of a campaign slush fund through the Vatican Bank. Angleton's imagination had an artistic dimension. As the story later circulated, he interrupted one embassy meeting in Rome in early 1948 to ask Ambassador James Dunn if he might offer an idea. I thought, he began mischievously, we might take advantage of one of America's great natural resources, Greta Garbo. The name of the Swedish actress invoked images of her sultry style. I realized she once belonged to another country, Angleton said but I believe by now we're justified in claiming her as our own. So I suggest we import one of her best pictures. He paused. I'd like to expose the Italians to Ninochka. Ninochka, released in 1939, was a comedy in which Garbo spoofed Stalinist Russia. The ambassador ratified Angleton's proposal on the spot. Actually, Angleton wasn't the only wise guy with this idea— the Hollywood studios had printed extra copies of Ninochka and made special arrangements to show the film in Italy as a way of contrasting golden America with ravaged Russia. At the end of the meeting, Angleton supposedly quipped, Miss Garba will prove a most lethal secret weapon. And so she did. The Christian Democrats emerged from the election of April 1948 with 48% of the vote and an absolute majority in Parliament. In this rather open and extensive intervention by the United States, Angleton had played a decisive role. His enemies, the communists, would never gain control of the government in Rome, and his allies would mostly prosper. Within twenty years, Monsignor Montini would become Pope Paul VI. Reunion in September 1949, Angleton traveled across the Atlantic Ocean by boat, arriving in Southampton, England, the same port that had welcomed him five years earlier. Then a novice, he was now an experienced spy. Upon landfall, he went straight away to London, where he had lunch with his friend Wynne Scott, now chief of the CIA's London station. They then plunged into a week of meetings with senior British and American colleagues at SIS headquarters. The good news for Angleton was that Kim Philby would soon take command of the SIS station in Washington. He thought Philby was the best of the British service. The bad news for Angleton was the creation of a new enterprise within the CIA, the Office of Policy Coordination. The OPC was especially galling to Angleton because it was born of his personal success in Italy. On May 4, 1948, barely three weeks after the Italian election, 
George Kennan, then a member of the State Department's policy planning staff, had drafted a memo stating, It would seem that the time is now fully ripe for the creation of a political warfare operations directorate within the government. We were alarmed at the inroads of the Russian influence in Western Europe beyond the point where the Russian troops had reached, Kennan later explained, and we were alarmed particularly over the situation in France and Italy, that is, why we thought we ought to have some facility for covert operations. Angleton's mission at OSO was narrow, the conduct of all organized federal espionage and counter-espionage operations outside of the United States. Espionage was the theft of secrets, and counter-espionage the prevention of the theft of secrets. OPC was entrusted with the more aggressive assignment, to wage political warfare, to manipulate the enemy's reality without disclosing the CIA's hand. Angleton felt sidelined. He favored ambitious covert operations against the Soviet Union and its allies, but he insisted they required careful preparation and tight security, neither of which the OPC practiced. As OPC began to expand rapidly, Angleton believed the agency was being taken over by amateurs. To fortify his position against office rivals, he went to London determined to consolidate his working relationship with Kim Philby, the rising star of SIS. The leaders of CIA and SIS felt an urgent need to forge a more effective working relationship. More than a few people in Washington and London feared World War III might start in the near future. The dream of a cooperative post-war world was dead. The strains between the Americans and the British services were dissipating under the growing Russian threat. The British wanted to preserve their sphere of influence, the politest way of describing their shrinking empire. The country's self-appointed imperial mission had been battered during the war and besieged after it. In the course of a few months in 1947-1948, the British had had to accept the independence of India, once the crown jewel of their colonies, and then abandon Palestine to the Zionists, who established the State of Israel. The Americans had a grander agenda. The newly created North Atlantic Treaty Organization would mobilize the armed forces necessary to deter any Soviet invasion of Western Europe. The Marshall Plan, funded by Congress, would provide an infusion of capital to rebuild Germany, France, and Italy as democratic countries allied with the United States, and the CIA would escalate secret operations against the Soviet Union and its allies to roll back the communists from the countries where they had taken power. The meeting of the minds in London in September 1949 settled on the requisite Anglo-American Division of Labor. The CIA needed expertise in running covert operations, an improved central file registry, and a more robust communication system, all of which the British had in place. SIS needed money and manpower, of which the Americans had a surplus. Kim Philby, all agreed, was just the man to make the new arrangements work in Washington. After the meetings were over, Philby sailed to the United States, while Angleton flew on to Paris, then Rome and Athens, visiting CIA stations in each city. He visited his parents and wrote occasionally to Sicily, who remained in Tucson with five-year-old Jamie, one-year-old Helen, and the newborn Lucy. His wife was bored and envious of his travels. Angleton was cavorting around Europe and Greece, and Sicily was complaining to a friend. Really, the hush-hush men deserve little pity, and this isn't even considered a vacation. 
By contrast, Cicely said she was spending her time talking about babies. They are wonderful, she wrote, but as a topic of conversation can make a woman duller than canned orange juice. Angleton and Philby resumed their friendship in December 1949 when they were reunited in Washington. Their bond, born in the classroom at Bletchley, nurtured in wartime London and enhanced by professional collaboration, still had room to grow. Philby was working out of an office in the British Embassy on Massachusetts Avenue. Angleton became his chief point of contact at the CIA. They were the closest of friends, soulmates in espionage. Angleton introduced Philby to the power rituals of Harvey's Seafood Grill on Connecticut Avenue. Located three blocks north of the White House, Harvey's was one of the places to be seen in the capital city. Harvey's claimed to have served every president since Ulysses S. Grant, a modest culinary distinction perhaps, but one that was irresistible to men with an appetite for power. Angleton didn't need to point out to his British friend the presence of J. Edgar Hoover, the sturdy and ominous director of the FBI who lunched with his cronies across the room. Philby embraced Angleton's tastes. He was a mentor to his American friend and a newcomer to his country. He sought Angleton's confidence. We formed the habit of lunching once a week at Harvey's, where he demonstrated regularly that overwork was not his only vice, Philby would recall in a memoir. He was one of the thinnest men I have ever met, and one of the biggest eaters. Lucky Jim, after years of keeping up with Angleton, I took the advice of an elderly lady, went on a diet, and dropped from thirteen stone to about eleven in three months. For all their mutual affection, the two men vied for advantage as they talked espionage over lobsters. No matter how closely two intelligence services may cooperate, there are always things which are withheld, observed Jim McCarger, an OPC desk officer who worked with Angleton and Philby. And there is, in the simple nature of things, a constant jockeying for advantage. It arouses no ill will, but it is, to the contrary, an accepted terrain for judging a man's professional abilities. Philby, the older man, was adept at these spy games. The greater the trust between us overtly, the less he, Angleton, would suspect covert action, he explained. Who gained the most from this complex game, I cannot say. I knew what he was doing for CIA, and he knew what I was doing for SIS, but the real nature of my interest was something he did not know. The friendship between Angleton and Philby was enhanced by mutual appreciation of the previously distant pleasures of marriage and family. Now settling in Washington, Philby and Angleton joined in conventional domesticity with their wives, the path of least resistance and pleasing in its own ways. Cicely had come from Tucson with the children. The Angletons bought a four-bedroom house on 33rd Road in North Arlington on the Virginia side of the Potomac. The Philbys settled into a modest rambler on Nebraska Avenue in northwest Washington. Both wives began entertaining their husbands' friends and colleagues. At the same time, both men maintained a life apart, working long hours and pursuing private interests. Angleton built a heated greenhouse to grow orchids, he installed a rock tumbler for polishing stones in his basement, where he made jewelry at night. In his basement, Philby stored camera equipment, which he used for his own nocturnal pastimes. For all their chummy bonhomie, Angleton and Philby shared a certain ruthlessness, no doubt implanted by the example of their headstrong, successful fathers. 
The profession of secret intelligence demanded calculation, autonomy, cleverness, and mastery, qualities that they could not have failed to appreciate in each other. Angleton had seen his father trade dull success in Dayton for daring opportunity in Milan. Philby's father, St. John, had broken with British establishment to become a Muslim and political advisor to King Ibn Saud. He even helped broker the U.S. acquisition of the Saudi oil concession, infuriating his countrymen. Philby's affable demeanor masked a hard streak that his more discerning associates glimpsed. He wore suede shoes, cravats, and crumpled suits when the rest of the senior staff subscribed to a strict dress code, said McCarger. His smile, suggestive of complicity in a private joke, conveyed an unspoken understanding of the unlying ironies of our work. Behind the modest, slightly crumpled exterior, there was no mistaking a quick mind and a tenacious will. Philby was a formidable man. Robert Mackenzie, the chief of security at the British Embassy, had worked with St. John Philby and saw the influence on his son. Philby had inherited from his father that same sense of dedicated idealism in which the means did not matter as long as the end was worthwhile, he said. This sense of dedication and purpose to whatever he was doing gleamed through and inspired men to follow. He was the sort of man who won worshippers. You didn't just like him, admire him, agree with him. You worshipped him. Angleton did not worship Philby. Self-abasing emotion was not his style, but he did display a veneration bordering on the romantic for the older man. He, too, thought himself bold and ruthless. As he had told Eugen Dolman, we are masters of the world. The friendship of these two masters extended into evenings and weekends when Jim and Cicely attended parties at Philby's sparsely furnished home on Nebraska Avenue. The entertainment usually consisted of a pitcher of martinis, a bottle or two of whiskey, some ice, and some glasses. The ever-considerate Philby poured the first round, and then the guests were on their own. The thirsty attendees included many people who passed through Philby's office during the day. There were CIA men like McCarger and his wife. There were embassy colleagues, including Wilfred Mann, a nuclear scientist, and his wife, Miriam, who were close to the Angletons. There were experienced cops like Robert McKenzie, and sometimes savvy FBI men like Mickey Ladd and Bob Lamphere and their wives. Later that summer, Philby's new houseguest, an openly homosexual man named Guy Burgess, joined the party. The consumption of liquor, observed McCarger, was gargantuan. Homo Circles The spring of 1950 was a sour season in Washington. Fears of war overseas bred fears of infiltration at home. In February, the previously obscure junior senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy, charged in a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, that there were 200 communists on the State Department payroll, an astonishing number, if true. The charge made headlines, so McCarthy took his case to the floor of the U.S. Senate. In the course of a six-hour speech, he presented a case-by-case -case analysis of 81 people whom he described as loyalty risks, without naming any of them. Over shouted objections, McCarthy led his Senate colleagues through each case. In most, he accused the unnamed officials of palling around with communists, joining communist front organizations, reading Soviet propaganda, or acting as Soviet agents. A few were homosexuals, McCarthy said, 
One flagrantly homosexual translator had been dismissed as a bad security risk, he noted, but the man was later reinstated by a high State Department official. As McCarthy and others on Capitol Hill began to weave together the threats of communism and homosexuality in 1950, Washington was engulfed with two popular passions, a wave of anti-communist fervor that liberal historians would call the Red Scare, and a widespread revulsion against homosexuals that gay historians would dub the Lavender Scare. Both communists and gays, it was said, should be purged from the federal government's workforce. The Lavender Scare was felt as an extraordinary political development. Homosexuality was all but unspeakable in American culture. Some newspapers would not even mention the word. Others, like the Washington Times-Herald, one of the capital's leading dailies, relied on abusive language. Gays and lesbians were queers, pansies, and cookie-pushers. In any case, to even speak of such people was unheard of and scandalous. And then there were the facts of the matter. While the florid-faced McCarthy was often reckless, his charges were not entirely imagined. There were a lot of gays and lesbians in Washington. The federal government had quadrupled in size between 1930 and 1950. More than a few of these governmental jobs were filled by gay people migrating into Washington, looking to escape the strictures of conventional families and small-town life. When Senator Millard Tidings, a liberal from Maryland, attacked McCarthy for the lack of specificity in his charges, the Wisconsin Republican responded with a true story which Tidings could not refute. One known homosexual had been dismissed from the State Department, McCarthy said, only to be immediately rehired by the CIA. This man, who was a homosexual, spent his times hanging around the men's room in Lafayette Park, he declared. Angleton knew the man McCarthy was talking about. His name was Carmel Offey. He worked for the CIA, and Angleton could not stand him. Carmel Offey was, by all accounts, an unusual and unscrupulous character. Born into a humble Italian family in Pennsylvania, he exhibited driving ambition at an early age. He studied dictation at a business school until he could take down conversations verbatim. He moved to Washington in the early 1930s, took a civil service exam, and was hired as a stenographer at the State Department. When William Bullitt, U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, asked for a first-class male stenographer, Offie was hired. In Moscow, he became Bullitt's assistant and lover. When Bullitt returned to the United States, he arranged for Offie to take the Foreign Service exam, which gained him a permanent job in the State Department. Offie had a knack for shady financial schemes, which he used to keep powerful patrons in his debt. Unusually for a gay man in those days, Offie did not hide his sexual preferences. He liked to refer to his bed as the playing fields of Eton, the all-male English boarding school attended by the British elite. In 1943, he was arrested for propositioning an undercover police officer in Lafayette Park. After hours, the leafy park across the street from the White House was a popular place for gay men to congregate. The Washington police arrest report was the factual basis for McCarthy's charge. At the time, Offie's bosses at the State Department defended him because he was simply too valuable to lose. They told the Washington police chief that Offie had gone to the park on departmental business— the charge was dropped, and Offie kept his job. When Frank Wisner, former chief of the OSS station in Romania, was selected to head the CIA's Office of Policy Coordination in 1948, 
one of the first people he hired was Carmel Offey. Amid the office power struggles, Angleton got to know Offey well. He was a Machiavellian operator, Angleton told a friend. A master intriguer, he knew everybody, superb bureaucratic infighter and guide. Angleton did not trust him. He was capable of floating ruinous, scandalous rumors, wrecking careers, he said. Angleton was well acquainted with Offie's problems in the spring of 1950. In October 1949, Offie had propositioned a U.S. Army officer after an OPC meeting with an innuendo-laden digression about the foolishness of men who wasted money chasing women when there was a better alternative at hand. The officer filed a complaint with his superiors who ordered an investigation. Angleton heard about the incident. He soon acquired the police report on Offie's arrest in 1943. McCarthy's charges alarmed CIA Director Roscoe Hillencotter. Hilly, as he was known, was a traditional man with traditional mores. He knew all about Offie's gay tendencies, having served on the staff of Ambassador Bullitt in the late 1930s. Hillencotter ordered Wisner to fire Offie. Wisner did not carry out the order, at least not right away. He was simply too dependent on Offie's skills. He put Offie on leave while allowing him to remain at the CIA, but McCarthy's charges showed the ruse was wearing thin. Offie was looking for another job to relieve the pressure on his boss. Angleton, no slouch at bureaucratic maneuvering, sensed opportunity. He asked Offie if he wanted to come to work for him at OSO. While he thought Offie had a criminal mentality, he also thought his range of contacts could be put to good use. Angleton told a friend he wanted to use Offie in homo circles in Europe. Surprised, Offie asked Angleton why he would offer him a job given that he hated him so much. That's just the reason, Angleton replied. No one would ever suspect. Offie refused the odd offer and continued to use his many contacts to look for a position elsewhere in the government. In May... Marquis Childs, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, heard that Offie was still working for the CIA despite his scandalous reputation. He called Hillencotter's office seeking comment. The individual in question, Hillencotter replied stiffly, had been employed but was no longer in CIA employ. Unfortunately for the Admiral, that was not quite true. When Helen Cotter called Frank Wisner, the latter said that his investigation of Offie's alleged offense had failed to reveal any grounds to substantiate the charge. Offie was still on the CIA payroll. On June 2nd, Childs called Helen Cotter again, seeking to verify that Mr. Carmel Offie was no longer employed by CIA. Helen Cotter assured Childs that Offie has no connections with the organization. Just to be sure, the irate director then ordered Wisner to put a memo in his personnel file to the effect that Carmel Offie was never to be rehired by CIA. And still, Offie was protected. Wisner arranged for him to go to work for J. Lovestone at the Free Trade Union Committee of the American Federation of Labor, which was subsidized by the CIA. Even Angleton conceded that Offie did a good job. He had many useful contacts in Europe, he said. Angleton's response to the Lavender Scare was telling. He was not repelled by Offie's homosexuality. He was not deterred by politics from coming to Offie's aid. He could and would keep secrets on behalf of a gay man if it served his purposes and the agency's. One writer would later insist, without evidence, that Angleton himself was homosexual.
Angleton certainly didn't think of himself as gay in the way Carmel Offy did, nor was he uncomfortable with such a man, even though he might dislike him otherwise. As always with Angleton, the imperatives of secret intelligence trumped the strictures of conventional morality. Philby Kim Philby's friend, Guy Burgess, was slightly taller than average in height, with a combination of blue eyes, inquisitive nose, and curly hair that gave him the expression of an alert fox terrier. Said one British reporter, he swam like an otter and drank not like a feckless undergraduate, but like some Rabelaisian bottles wiper with a thirst unquenchable. After a cocktail or two, his eyes would light up with a glint of a sexual appetite that was insatiable. Said one lover, if anyone invented homosexuality, it was Guy Burgess. In mid-twentieth century Washington, Burgess stood out even more than Carmel Offie. In a city where gay impulses were all but unmentionable, Burgess did not conceal his witty contempt for American conventions— before Burgess took up his post in Washington, his boss in London, who knew full well of his sexual recklessness, warned him there were three taboos he must respect in America. Homosexuality, communism, and the color line. Burgess pondered the advice. What you're trying to say in your nice, long-winded way, he deadpanned, is, Guy, for God's sake, don't make a pass at Paul Robeson the statuesque African-American actor known for his communist sympathies. Philby welcomed Burgess to Washington in the summer of 1950. Philby's masculine style encompassed toleration, even affection for Burgess. They might even have been lovers. Philby's colleague Basil Mann dropped by the house unannounced one morning and found Kim and Guy lounging together in Philby's bed, dressed in bathrobes, drinking champagne. In 1934, while students at Cambridge University, Philby and Burgess first met when Burgess collected money for the Campus Socialist Society, of which Philby was treasurer. They had stayed in touch ever since. During the war, Burgess worked at the British Broadcasting Company, where he produced a popular radio program. He helped Philby get his first job in the Secret Service. Burgess became an aide to Hector McNeil, the Minister of State for the Foreign Office, who sent him to Washington in the fatuous hope that his scandalous private life would not stand out in a large embassy. When Burgess arrived in August 1950, he stayed as a temporary guest in Philby's house at 5100 Nebraska Avenue. Philby introduced Burgess to Angleton. Like many people, Angleton was half appalled and half charmed by Burgess's exuberance. He invited both men to his house, and Angleton's daughter remembered the drunken games they played. They'd start chasing each other through the house in this little choo-choo train. According to Siri Hari, Lucy Angleton, these men in their eaten ties, screaming and laughing. At another raucous party, she recalled, Philby's wife passed out and was just lying on the floor. Mummy said, Oh, Kim, don't you want to see how Mrs. Philby is doing? And he said, Ah... Uh, and just stepped right over her to get another drink. Guy Burgess was an ornament in Angleton's social world, but he had a mean streak, too, as Angleton knew full well. Jim and Cicely attended a dinner party at the Philby's in January 1951 in honor of Bill Harvey, who would soon head off to command the CIA's base in Berlin. Harvey's enduring resentment of the Ivy Leaguers who dominated the agency had only been slightly mollified by his prestigious assignment. 
and his suspicions of the effete British had only been slightly eased by Philby's liquid hospitality. Harvey's wife Libby, an unsophisticated Midwesterner, had just begun to get comfortable with such cosmopolitan company. Guy Burgess wandered into the house, vivacious and drunk as usual. He exchanged pleasantries with the Harveys and let slip that he was a caricaturist and would be delighted to do a portrait in honor of Mrs. Harvey. He dashed off a drawing and presented it to the lady. The drawing depicted Libby Harvey, depending on which version of the story you believe, as either a homely hag or a wanton woman with her dress hiked up and legs obscenely spread. Enraged, Harvey threatened Burgess, and the two men had to be separated. The Harveys stalked out, and the party broke up. Sicily and Miriam Mann consoled Eileen Philby, who was in tears while Angleton commiserated with Basil Mann. All the while, Kim sat, head in hands, anguished by Burgess's outrageous ways for more reasons than his wife and friends could possibly imagine. Suddenly, he was weeping. How could you? Philby sobbed. How could you? I always thought there was something wrong with Philby, Angleton would later tell fellow CIA officer John Hart. He told journalist Andrew Boyle that he suspected as early as 1951 that Philby might be a spy. Such claims are not supported by any evidence. In fact, one of Angleton's friends raised doubts about Philby's loyalties at the time, and Angleton did not act. The friend was Teddy Colick a British Zionist who had served as an SIS agent during the war before emigrating to Israel. Angleton had met Colic in Rome after the war as the Jewish agency organized the exodus of European Jews to Palestine. They were reunited when Colic was assigned to work at the Israeli embassy in Washington. In the fall of 1950, Colic paid a visit to CIA headquarters to see Angleton. I was walking towards Angleton's office, Colic recounted, when suddenly I spotted a familiar face at the other end of the hallway. I burst into Angleton's office and said, Jim, you'll never guess who I saw in the hallway. It was Kim Philby. Colic knew Philby. He had lived in Austria in 1934 when a fascist government crushed a socialist insurgency that had drawn supporters from across Europe, including the young Philby. Colic told Angleton that Philby may have been recruited as an agent of the Soviet Union. Once a communist, always a communist, he said. Angleton stared back. Jim never reacted to anything, Colic said. The subject was dropped and never raised again. On June 25, 1950, the men and women of the Central Intelligence Agency were caught by surprise. The Army of Communist North Korea invaded South Korea. President Harry Truman was surprised, too. It wasn't until eight hours after the fighting began that the commander-in-chief received the news— where was the CIA, the president wanted to know. Summoned to Capitol Hill to explain, Director Hillencotter said of wars, you can't predict the timing. When Truman heard that, he wanted a new CIA director. Truman chose General Walter Beadle Smith to replace Hillencotter. Smith, known as Beadle, was serving as U.S. ambassador to Moscow. He was best known for starting out as a buck private in the Indiana National Guard, and rising to become General Dwight Eisenhower's chief of staff during World War II. Smith was the product of military education, training, and tradition. He did not come to his new job with the high opinion of the fledgling CIA. I expect the worst, and no, I won't be disappointed, he wrote to one friend. Smith thought he was taking over an intelligence organization, 
only to discover the CIA was a sprawling entity that had acquired its own radio stations, newspapers, airlines, and even private armies. A stickler for order, Smith set out to get control of the organization, particularly its covert operations. He asked OSS veteran Alan Dulles, now a partner at the Sullivan and Cromwell law firm, to serve as a short-term consultant. Dulles moved to CIA headquarters in Washington for six weeks. He wound up staying for a decade. Angleton was delighted to be working with Dulles again. He was more critical of Smith, whom he thought had no appreciation for the difficulty of running covert operations. The acerbic general, in turn, had no special regard for Angleton, especially not after Guy Burgess, the obnoxious houseguest of Angleton's friend Kim Philby, turned out to be a Soviet spy. Angleton learned the story after the Memorial Day holiday in May 1951. He might have heard it from Philby himself. Donald McLean, a top official in the British Embassy, had vanished while on home leave in England, and apparently Guy Burgess had vanished with him. U.S. and British officials had come to suspect that McLean was a spy. The U.S. Army's code-breaking office had deciphered a series of messages sent to the Soviets in 1944 and 1945 from a source identified only as Homer, who spoke of a pregnant wife in New York whom he visited regularly. At the time, McLean's wife was pregnant and lived in New York. British officials had just decided to summon McLean for questioning when he disappeared. The British traced his movements in England. They discovered that Burgess, also on home leave, had picked up McLean in a rented car. The two men had boarded a ferry to France, where the trail went cold. The only possible explanation for McLean's flight, just as he was about to face interrogation, was that he had been spying for the Soviet Union. The simultaneous disappearance of Burgess was a surprise, because he had not been suspected of spying. Had someone tipped them off that McLean was in danger? Was there a third spy in Washington? A third man? Suspicions focused on Kim Philby. Beetle Smith asked everyone on his staff who knew Burgess, McLean, and Philby to assess their loyalties. Bill Harvey responded first. He consulted with Wynne Scott, who knew Philby from his stints in London. They agreed Philby was a Soviet spy and that he had tipped off Burgess and McLean. In a memo dated June 13th, Harvey noted Philby had been joint commander of a CIA-SIS operation in Albania, which was plagued with security problems. Philby had known about the codebreaker's efforts to identify the Soviet agent known as Homer. And, of course, Philby had shared his house with Burgess. Harvey argued forcefully that these constituted too many coincidences to allow an innocent conclusion. A few days later, Angleton said Philby was guilty only of being too fond of Burgess. Philby had consistently sold subject as a most gifted individual, Angleton wrote in his memo to Smith. In this respect, he has served as subject's apologist on several occasions when subject's behavior has been a source of extreme embarrassment in the Philby household. Philby has explained away these idiosyncrasies on ground that Subject suffered a severe brain concussion in an accident which had continued to affect him periodically. The tenor of Angleton's memo was that the trusting Philby could not be blamed for Burgess's treachery. Harvey scoffed. When he read Angleton's memo, he scrawled across the bottom, Where's the rest of the story? Harvey speculated that there was a homosexual relationship between Philby and Angleton, or that the two were such good friends that Angleton just could not bring himself to face the possibility that Philby was a spy. 
Beadle Smith told the British that the CIA would have no contact with SIS until Philby was removed from his position in Washington. Philby prepared to return to London. When Angleton heard the news, he called Philby and suggested they meet for a drink. In his memoir, Philby said he thought his American friend seemed oddly clueless about his predicament. The CIA thought he was a spy, and SIS was calling him home. In fact, Philby had been spying for the Soviet Union for 16 years and had been deceiving his friend Angleton for seven. He had tipped off McLean about his imminent arrest, though he never expected Burgess to bolt with him. Angleton, confronted with the possibility that his deep and warm friendship was a sham, did not allow himself to believe it. At their last meeting, Angleton told Philby he expected they would meet again. The poignant truth, as Jim McCarger discovered, was that Angleton believed Philby was innocent. One day in 1952, he ran into Angleton at Hotel Creon in Paris. They talked about the Philby affair. Knowing nothing of the facts, McCarger wrote later, my feeling at the time was that Philby had been railroaded out of the British service by American pressure. I therefore told Jim, unless he thought it undesirable for any reason, my intention was to invite Philby for drinks the next time I was in London. Jim said he thought it was a very good idea. I still feel Philby someday will head the British service, Angleton said. He didn't care what Bill Harvey and J. Edgar Hoover said. He still believed his great good friend Philby was an honest man. Mossad after Philby's forced departure, the upward trajectory of Angleton's career flattened for the first time. He was no longer the miracle worker of the Italian elections. The disaster of Burgess and McLean did nothing to endear him to the dyspeptic Beetle Smith. The arrival of Alan Dulles in the so-called Tempo buildings on the Mall was a positive development for Angleton. The merger of OPC and OSO was not. In 1952, Dulles merged the CIA's two competing divisions into a single clandestine service known as the Directorate of Plans. Smith anointed Frank Wisner to run it. To Angleton's way of thinking, Beetle Smith had been hoodwinked by Wisner and his psychological warfare specialists. Angleton argued that the agency had to tighten security, focus on intelligence collection, and understand the history of Soviet intelligence operators before it could mount secret actions of its own. With his usual creativity, he looked for opportunities to prove his point. One opportunity was Israel. The Zionists had gained their state in May 1948, using moral appeals, bombs, assassination, and weapons provided by Eastern European communists, they drove out the British, commandeered the strategic heights of historic Palestine, and declared a Jewish homeland. They expelled most of the Arab residents and defeated the combined armies of Arab nations, which could not imagine that Jews from distant Europe could establish their own country in their midst. They could and did. Angleton was initially wary of Israel, Many Jews espoused communism, and the Soviet Union was the first nation to extend diplomatic recognition to the Jewish state. He thought the Soviet intelligence service would use Israel as a way station for inserting spies into the West. But Stalin's anti-Semitic purges in 1948 guaranteed that the Israelis would not fall under Soviet sway. In 1950, Ruven Shiloa, the founder of Israel's first intelligence organization, visited Washington and came away impressed by the CIA. 
In April 1951, he reorganized the fractious Israeli security forces to create a new foreign intelligence agency called the Institute for Intelligence and Special Tasks, inevitably known as the Mossad, the Hebrew word for institute. In 1951, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion came to the United States and brought Shiloa with him. Ben-Gurion met privately with President Trump and Walter Bettel Smith. Angleton arranged for Ben-Gurion to lunch with Alan Dulles. The purpose of the meeting, said Ephraim Halevi, retired director of the Mossad and a longtime friend of Angleton, was to clarify in no uncertain terms that, notwithstanding what had happened between Israel and the United States in 1948, and notwithstanding that Russia had been a key factor in Israel's survival, Israel considered itself part of the Western world, and it would maintain the relationship with the United States in this spirit. Shiloh stayed on in Washington to work out the arrangements with Angleton. The resulting agreement laid the foundation for the exchange of secret information between the two services and committed them to report to each other on subjects of mutual interest. Shiloh, according to his biographer, soon developed a special relationship with Angleton, who became the CIA's exclusive liaison with the Mossad. Angleton returned the favor by visiting Israel. Shiloh introduced him to Amos Menor, chief of counter-espionage for Israel's domestic intelligence agency, known as Shabak or Shin Bet. Menor was an attractive man, tall, athletic, and outgoing. Born in present-day Romania as Arthur Mendelovich, he had grown up in a wealthy Jewish family, most of whose members had died in the Holocaust. Put on a train bound for Auschwitz, he had jumped off and escaped to join the Jewish underground. He emigrated to Israel using a forged passport. Menor joined the General Security Service and changed his name. He spoke Hebrew, English, French, Romanian, and Hungarian, and he had uncanny understanding of how other people thought, perhaps the most important skill a counterintelligence officer can possess. Menor headed up what the Israelis called Operation Balsam, their conduit to the Americans. They told me I had to collect information about the Soviet bloc and transmit it to them, Menor later recalled. I didn't know exactly what to do, but then I had the idea of giving them the material we had gathered a year earlier about the efforts of the Eastern bloc to use Israel to bypass an American trade embargo. We edited the material and informed them that they should never ask us to identify sources. Another arena for Angleton's ambition was organized labor. Early on, he grasped the truth that unions were a key to political power in the democratic West and central to communist strategy. He needed sources in the labor movement. That's why he turned to Jay Lovestone, the chief of the American Federation of Labor's Free Trade Union Committee. Growing up as a Jewish immigrant in New York City, Lovestone became a communist. As the leader of the American Communist Party in the 1920s, his independent ways were rebuked by Joseph Stalin himself. In a decade of intra-communist struggle, Lovestone learned and loved to operate through front organizations to achieve his political goals. During World War II, he rejected communism and joined the staff of the AFL, one of the two largest confederations of American labor unions, rivaled only by the more left-wing Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO. In a mutually agreeable arrangement, Angleton hired him. Lovestone handled the AFL's relations with the labor unions around the world. The CIA funded him. He not only reported to Angleton, but also helped him build his own intelligence network. 
Lovestone introduced Angleton to his friend Louise Page Morris, an attractive 45-year-old divorcee from New York City. She had worked at OSS and taken its former chief Bill Donovan as a lover for a while, so she knew the world of intelligence. As an heiress to the Morris tobacco fortune, she didn't lack for money. She craved adventure and found it in one of the few roles available to independent-minded women of the era, assistant to a man of power. When Morris met Angleton in the summer of 1949, she took care to look good. She wore a purple skirt, a tight white linen blouse with a high neck tucked in at the waist, and white Italian sandals. She thought Angleton was handsome with his high forehead, large brown eyes, and jutting jaw. She noticed he wore a double-breasted charcoal gray suit and a Homburg-style hat in the Washington heat, as though trying to make himself look older. He was all of thirty-one years old at the time. "'Would you like to work for me?' Angleton asked. "'Not for the CIA. Just for me. I want you to be my eyes and ears. Go on special assignments. Stay clear of the embassies. Let things come your way naturally.' Morris was hired on the spot. She was paid $500 a month with a generous expense account. Her cover was that she worked for Lovestone and ran the AFL's library in New York City. Her code name was Martha. She passed her reports to Mario Broad, Angleton's hustler pal from OSS days, who was now a lawyer in New York. In her reports to Lovestone, they referred to Angleton as Scarecrow. Lovestone's biographer would describe Morris as Angleton's Matahari, the Dutch-born singer and exotic dancer who spied on behalf of the German military command during World War I. Caught by the French police, Matahari was executed by a firing squad. Morris would serve as Angleton's spy for a decade, traveling to Cairo, Baghdad, Berlin, Jakarta, and Japan. She never met a firing squad, but she did risk her life for Angleton on more than one occasion, a measure of his persuasive powers. LSD. In the darkness of room 1018 at the Statler Hotel in New York City, someone or something lifted Frank Olson off his bare feet, off the carpet, and propelled him headfirst toward the window overlooking 7th Avenue. Whether it was a man or mental demons, the source of the force was so powerful that Olson's body exploded through the glass window and sailed out into the cool night air of midtown Manhattan. In the first second, Frank Olson fell sixteen feet. In the second, sixty-four. It was like the guy was diving, his hands out in front of him, but then his body twisted and he was coming down feet first, his arms grabbing at the air above him, said the hotel doorman who looked up at the sound of the breaking glass. The falling man struck a temporary wooden partition that shielded the construction underway on the hotel's facade. Then he tumbled to the sidewalk, landing on his back. It was 2.25 a.m. on Saturday, November 28, 1953. Up on the tenth floor, inside the room from which Olson had been ejected, there was a wide-awake man named Robert Lashbrook. He was a chemist for the CIA's Technical Services Division— he looked out at the shattered window. Olson's body lay on the sidewalk below. He had better things to do than go down to see if poor Olson was dead. Lashbrook could and would console himself with the thought that he himself hadn't killed Olson and that he was forbidden by the agency and the law from saying anything more about what had happened in room 1018. 
The story Lashbrook couldn't tell was that he was under CIA orders to control Olson, a U.S. Army scientist. Olson had been given a dosage of LSD to see if it would compel him to tell the truth about what he knew of certain operational matters involving bioweapons research. The CIA had ordered Olson to be taken to New York over the Thanksgiving holiday to talk to an agency-cleared doctor. After a few days, Olson became upset. He wanted to go home, which was not allowed. Olson's will conflicted with the CIA's ways in room 1018, and Olson went out the window. Now Lashbrook had a problem his bosses needed to know about. He uncradled the phone and called the hotel operator. She connected him to Dr. Harold Abramson, the agency-clear doctor whom Olson had been seeing. Abramson called himself a psychiatrist, but was trained only as an allergist. Well, he's gone, Lashbrook said, according to the hotel operator who listened in on the call. When two New York City police officers arrived 40 minutes later, they took Lashbrook to the precinct house where he gave a statement. He explained Olson's distressed mental state and the concerns of his Army colleagues without mentioning his work for the CIA or the use of LSD. Lashbrook returned to the Statler and checked into a new room. Not long after the sun had risen, Lashbrook received a visitor, James McCord, from the CIA's Office of Security. McCord was a diligent and taciturn man, a former FBI agent tasked with reporting on what had happened. Lashbrook finally felt free to speak. He explained that his assignment involved Olson and security concerns about some sensitive chemical weapons operations. McCord took it all down. And so began the cover-up of Frank Olson's wrongful death and the notorious CIA operation known as MKUltra, which encompassed a wide range of experiments to control the workings of the human mind in the service of U.S. national security. It wasn't until many years later that Angleton's supporting role in the MKUltra story emerged. Angleton worked with narcotics agent George White, his friend from OSS days, to establish two CIA safe houses in New York and San Francisco where LSD experiments were conducted on unsuspecting subjects for two decades. In the fall of 1952, Angleton had had several work meetings in Washington with Harold Abramson and Robert Lashbrook, the men who would accompany Olson during his fatal trip to New York a year later. Angleton wasn't involved in the events leading to Olson's death, but he did give birth to the CIA's mind control program. The term mind control and the cryptonym MKUltra have become notorious in the American imagination, and for good reason. The CIA's efforts in the 1950s and 1960s to manipulate human behavior through chemistry, hypnosis, and coercion constituted a far-flung conspiracy to experiment on unwitting people in the name of national security. MKUltra is shorthand for a government-sanctioned crime wave born in the peculiar circumstances of the world in the mid-20th century. America in the 1950s was peaceful, prosperous, and fearful of subversion. In Washington, the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare, and the flight of Burgess and McLean, lent credence to the charges of ambitious politicians like Senator McCarthy and Congressman Richard Nixon of California that the government was riddled with security threats. In the newsreels, Americans saw the Communists' 1949 show trial of Hungarian Cardinal Josef Mincenti, in which the zombie-like defendant confessed to crimes he probably had not committed. 
The word brainwashing, coined in 1950 to describe North Korea's treatment of U.S. prisoners of war, instantly entered the American lexicon, adding fear of mental manipulation to concerns about communist infiltration. The CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence responded by creating Operation Bluebird. The program had several objectives— the first was to discover ways to condition U.S. personnel to prevent unauthorized extraction of information by known means. Another goal was to outdo the communists at brainwashing, to control people through use of special interrogation techniques, including hypnosis and drugs. A third goal was memory enhancement to improve human intelligence collection, and the fourth was figuring how to prevent hostile control of agency personnel. When the Korean War erupted, the Bluebird program grew rapidly. A year later, in July 1951, Beetle Smith received a list containing the names of 82 employees cleared for working on Bluebird. One of them was Angleton. In August 1952, the operation was renamed Artichoke, and responsibility for research was given to the Technical Services Division, or TSD, which provided operational support for CIA clandestine activities. The TSD scientists were especially intrigued by the potential of a chemical known as LSD-25. It was an organic compound of lysergic acid discovered by a Swiss scientist in 1943. Even the tiniest of dosages seemed to induce anxiety, hysteria, imbalance, even insanity, but also clarity, calmness, insight, and wisdom. For help in utilizing LSD, the agency turned to Angleton's old friend, George Hunter White. George White was a natural choice for CIA consultant on drug-related issues. At 44 years of age, White was perhaps the best-known narcotics agent in the country. He had made headlines nationwide in January 1945 for arresting jazz singer Billie Holiday in a San Francisco hotel room for possession of heroin. Holiday was acquitted. In October 1949, White received the U.S. Treasury Department's Exceptional Civilian Service Award for his work on breaking up numerous illicit narcotics rings while operating at grave personal risk. The CIA men were intrigued by his expertise. When White went to Rome for an undercover narcotics operation in 1948, he called on Angleton for support, and Deputy Ray Rocca loaned him a gun. In 1950, White was introduced to Alan Dulles and they stayed up until one in the morning talking about his truth drug experiments in the OSS. Their mutual attraction wasn't hard to figure. White was a streetwise cop who could carry out Angleton's secret missions. Angleton was a savvy insider who could give White's entree into the suites of the glamorous CIA. White recorded certain episodes of their collaboration in his pocket calendars, which wound up in the library at Stanford University. These diaries trace how Angleton pursued the use of psychoactive drugs for intelligence work. White's role with the CIA was formalized in the spring of 1952 when he met Sidney Gottlieb, the chief of the chemical branch of the Technical Services Division. To Gottlieb's surprise, White said that he had already had several discussions about LSD with Angleton. Later that summer, Angleton and White met in a Washington restaurant to discuss a special teaching assignment for White. In September 1952, Angleton met with White and Gottlieb in New York before going out to dinner with TSD colleagues 
including Bob Lashbrook and Harold Abramson, the men who later concocted the story that Frank Olson had thrown himself through a window as a way to kill himself. On October 30, 1952, Angleton met again with White, who went on to a meeting with Lashbrook about TD, White's code for truth drugs. Angleton's interest in LSD was not purely professional. He tried the drug a few weeks later, according to White. In a letter to his lawyer, White said that Angleton came to have Thanksgiving dinner with him and his wife, Albertine, at their New York City apartment. The next evening, after Albertine went to work, White and Angleton drank gin and tonics laced with LSD. White recounted that he had a delayed reaction to the drug, while Angleton had a pleasurable experience. He said that Angleton, after really coming under the effects of the drug, talked him into taking a taxi to Chinatown to have dinner. With plates of food before them, they began laughing about something I can't remember now, and they never got around to eating a bite. It may be coincidence, but after Angleton and White took LSD in November 1952, Angleton's name never again appeared in George White's diary. Over the course of the previous eight years, White had recorded a dozen meetings with Angleton, but not one after November 1952. Perhaps Angleton's psychedelic trip to Chinatown with White, its hallucinatory wonders, its negation of hunger, its comic immensity, ended their friendship or his interest in LSD, or both. Angleton had more important issues on his mind. General Dwight D. Eisenhower, elected president of the United States of America on November 4, 1952, was the first Republican to occupy the White House in 20 years. He brought a new foreign policy agenda to Washington and a new management to the CIA, which was all to the good as far as Angleton was concerned. Eisenhower appointed John Foster Dulles, a career diplomat and older brother of Allen, as Secretary of State. To ensure his control of the diplomatic corps on a day-to-day -day basis, Eisenhower also wanted Beetle Smith, his former executive officer, to serve as Undersecretary of State. When Smith moved to that job, Allen Dulles became the Director of Central Intelligence, the position he had been scheming to create and claim since 1945. Angleton was feeling inspired by one of the most popular movies of 1952, High Noon. It was a tale of the Old West starring Gary Cooper, which made a lasting impression on Angleton as an allegory of America in the Cold War. The prosperous citizens in the frontier town of Hadleyville are suddenly confronted with the return of a menace which they thought had been banished forever, Angleton later explained in an essay on the movie, the situation is classic because of its brilliant delineation of the opposed forces of good and evil. In the movie, word flashes through Hadleyville that the gunslinger Frank Miller, who had terrorized residents until Marshall Kane, played by Cooper, brought him to justice, has been released from the penitentiary. To take revenge, Miller and his old gang are coming back to the town. As in post-war America, prosperity had bred complacency in Hadleyville. But when Marshall Kane broke in upon the services at the church to ask for help, his plea fell on deaf ears, Angleton wrote. The banker, the merchant, the lawyer, the town clerk all drew back. Frank Miller, they argued, was the marshal's responsibility. He was paid to handle it. So Kane, mindful of his duty, put aside everything he held dear. His bride, the honeymoon in which they were about to leave. He went out into the street alone and did the job. Angleton thought it was high noon in the Cold War. 
Like Marshall Kane, he believed the man of the CIA confronted an implacable evil foe. Like the Marshal, he had to act alone because ordinary people would shy from the task. He was ready to sacrifice the comforts of family and safety so that others could enjoy their American freedoms. He had a proposal for Mr. Dulles. Part 2. Power. Counterintelligence. How did James Angleton elevate himself from staff functionary at a new government agency to untouchable Mandarin who would have an all-but-transcendent influence on U.S. intelligence operations for the next two decades? With voracious intellect and compelling charm, said one Washingtonian who knew him late in life, he embodied the will to defeat communism. Who presumed to rebut watching his knitted, knotted, weaving, bobbing, stalking lexicon of body language of the Cold War, wrote journalist Burton Hirsch, who undertook to challenge that? Not many. No one was more captivated by Angleton than his friend and mentor Alan Dulles, now director of Central Intelligence. Like Angleton, Dulles preferred collaborating with fascists to enabling communists, like Angleton, he had little patience for liberals who embraced slogans like land reform, non-alignment, and peaceful coexistence, which he regarded as so much camouflage for the confiscation of wealth. Like Angleton, Dulles was a man of action. He wasted no time in redirecting the CIA. Whereas Beetle Smith had vetoed the idea of launching a covert operation against the government of Iran, Dulles approved. Iran's offense was pressing the British-controlled Anglo-Iranian oil company for more equitable royalty arrangements. Without much evidence, Dulles concluded this was a Soviet power play. In August 1953, the nationalist prime minister Mohammad Mossadegh was overthrown by a joint CIA-SIS psychological warfare operation that relied on propaganda, diplomatic isolation, and paramilitary action. Iran's parliamentary democracy was crushed by a dictatorial monarchy that lasted until 1979. In Guatemala, Beetle Smith had sided with the State Department in rejecting proposals for covert action against the country's reformist president, Jacobo Arpence, who was seeking to nationalize the unused property of the United Fruit Company. Dulles, who had done legal work for United Fruit, saw Arpence as the first communist interloper in the Western Hemisphere— in June 1954, a CIA psychological warfare operation drove Arpence from power and replaced him with the more compliant military junta, which dismantled the country's democratic system and exiled Arpence. These operations impressed President Eisenhower, who marveled at their low-cost benefits to U.S. foreign policy. They also boosted morale in the directorate of plans in the CIA offices on the Mall. But they did not much affect the agency's main enemy, the Soviet Intelligence Service, the Komitet Gosudarstvenoi Bezopasnosti, Committee for State Security, or KGB, which seemed to be operating as freely as ever in the United States. According to the National Security Agency's Venona program, which deciphered Soviet communications, the KGB had cultivated an extensive network of informants in American institutions. That was Angleton's opening. He was not an activist administrator like Operations Chief Frank Wisner or an efficient taskmaster like Dick Helms, Wisner's number two. Angleton was not a covert operator in the mode of Bill Harvey, who was digging a tunnel into Soviet-occupied Berlin, or Wynne Scott, who would take over the Mexico City station. 
Angleton's specialty was more refined. Intelligence collection, the running of agents, and the development of a counterintelligence archive to understand the techniques of the enemy. He spent much of 1954 talking to Dulles about how to ensure the confidentiality and security of CIA operations. Angleton thought there was much room for improvement. He admired Wisner as much as anyone for his tireless idealism and his willingness to try anything, but his approach was not working. Angleton's oft-voiced skepticism had been vindicated in late 1952 when Wisner's biggest operation in Eastern Europe fell apart. The CIA had pumped $5 million worth of guns, gold, and communications gear into Poland in support of an anti-communist army called the Freedom and Independence Movement, known by its Polish acronym WIN. The agency had been helping the group's exiled leaders for years. Now, with the force of 500 soldiers and 20,000 supporters inside the country, the CIA men felt they were ready to challenge Soviet domination of Poland. In fact, they were fools. The Soviet and Polish intelligence services had been baiting the trap for years. When Wynn dropped its agents into the country, the communists detained them and forced them to send back false progress reports, along with requests for more money and men. Wisner's men had obliged all too willingly. In December 1952, the Poles went public with their ruse, revealing there was no anti-communist opposition. To needle the United States, the Poles announced they were sending the CIA's funds to support the Communist Party in Italy. In July 1954, President Eisenhower appointed a committee, headed by U.S. Army General James Doolittle, to conduct an independent review of CIA operations. As Chief of Foreign Intelligence, Angleton was asked to brief the committee. Behind closed doors, Angleton said the agency's current setup had led to confusion, duplication, and waste of manpower and money. The agency, he argued, needed a staff dedicated to counterintelligence, a staff that was knowledgeable about the KGB and its methods. Such a staff could oversee covert operations at a management level to make sure the Soviets had not penetrated the U.S. government or the CIA. Counterintelligence, he said, was both a body of knowledge and a way of seeing the world. The agency needed both. Dulles was persuaded, and Angleton had found his mission. Angleton brooded longest and perhaps with the greatest penetration over the specialized methodology of counterintelligence, said his friend Robin Winks, a Yale historian. He was ends-oriented and could remember his own lies, surely a necessary brace of qualities for a successful spy. Counterintelligence was a challenge very much like the literary criticism Angleton had learned at Yale. To interpret the enemy's communications and its documents required teasing meaning from its texts that were filled with the kind of ambiguities his friend, the critic William Empson, delineated in poetry. Angleton's counterintelligence was radical in the sense that it went to the root of the CIA's functions. As one agency chronicler put it, Counterintelligence is to intelligence as epistemology is to philosophy. Both go back to the fundamental question of how we know things. Both challenge what we are inclined to take most for granted. Recalling a line from his favorite poem, Garantian, Angleton described KGB deception operations as a wilderness of mirrors designed to disorient the West. Taken to its extreme, and Angleton would take it there, Counterintelligence suggested that the more reliable a source appeared to be, the more likely he was to be a Soviet agent. It was a poetry of sorts, 
The improbable but undeniable impact of Ivy League literary criticism on geopolitics was embodied in Angleton. Angleton persuaded Dulles of a foundational principle, that counterintelligence properly pursued had to be proactive. He would have to see everything in the agency's archives, including the Office of Security's personnel files. It was an unprecedented power that no one else in the agency possessed. Angleton insisted, and Dulles approved. In December 1954, the orders were issued and Angleton became chief of the new counterintelligence staff. He was now, in the words of one CIA watcher, a ghost in the system, wired into the center of a panopticon rendered in paperwork. He operated ahead of the conventional intel process, monitored all internal communications, and used a vast network extending far outside the official CIA to keep tabs on the entire intelligence establishment. From raw SIGINT, Signals Intelligence, to Special Operations, Angleton was an invisible supervisor. From this position, he built an empire, his own clandestine service housed within the CIA. Angleton's vision was expansive. No one was more important to his ambitions than FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. With the CIA barred by law from operating on U.S. soil, Angleton needed the FBI's counterintelligence capabilities to keep track of Soviet spies in the United States. Hoover was not much interested. He ran his national police force and its thousands of field agents as an instrument of his personal and political will. He had no use for rival agencies. Hoover had welcomed the dissolution of the OSS in 1945 and resented its revival in the form of the CIA in 1947. Like Senator McCarthy, he regarded the agency as a nest of liberals, atheists, homosexuals, professors, and otherwise feminized men who specialized in wasting the taxpayer dollar. Hoover responded to Angleton's overture with disdain. He sent a junior agent to serve as liaison with Angleton's office. Angleton responded by loading the young man with drinks and reams of high-quality reporting. Hoover, who loved having dirt on his enemies, responded grudgingly. Angleton had only one requirement for his secrets. He did not want to be identified in FBI documents as the source of the information. Typically, the Bureau described information from the CIA as Confidential Informant T2, an agency of the U.S. government that conducts personnel and intelligence investigations. Angleton refused the designation. The recipients of the documents, he noted, would inevitably surmise that the information came from the CIA. Angleton asked the Bureau to identify him only as Bureau Source 100. Hoover approved. Angleton moved into a suite of offices in the L Building on the Mall. He now had several secretaries working for him, along with a deputy, Herman Horton, who handled the daily issues of the office. The staff's charter, written by Angleton and published in March 1955, established four offices in his new domain. Angleton needed a liaison officer to handle daily contacts with the FBI and the other federal agencies. He brought on Jane Atherton Roman, who had worked with him in OSO. She was as reliable as they came. A graduate of Smith College, she married, divorced, and joined the OSS in 1944, where her research assignments in the X2 branch took her to London and Berlin and then back to Washington. In 1954, she had married a colleague, Howard Roman, an assistant to Dulles. She was, in the words of Bill Hood, 
a super-administrative, high-level secretary and desk operative. She was very experienced. Her job was to monitor the FBI, and the information that we passed to the FBI would go through her. Angleton established an office for research. He wanted to compile a body of knowledge about Soviet intelligence operations with files on history, techniques, and personnel. For this job, he called Ray Roca from the Rome Station and named him Chief of Research and Analysis. He created an office, the Special Investigations Group, SIG, dedicated to looking for security breaches inside the agency. The task of the SIG was to perform the CI investigation and analysis of any known or potential security leak in the clandestine services organization, whether in headquarters or in the field. Concerned that no office in the U.S. government kept track of Americans who defected to the Soviet Union, Angleton assigned the SIG to monitor defectors as well. Angleton called on Birch O'Neill, a former FBI man who had most recently served as station chief in Guatemala, to serve as chief of the SIG. Finally, Angleton set up a special projects office to handle sensitive missions such as opening U.S. mail or doing deals with the Israelis. For these tasks, he relied on Stephen Millett, a fair-haired and tight-lipped CIA man from Bristol, Rhode Island, who was working with Jay Lovestone and Carmel Offey at the Free Trade Union Confederation. Roman, O'Neill, Roca, and Millett would work for Angleton for the rest of their careers. They carried out his orders and kept his secrets. They were loyal and discreet. They trusted his genius. As J. Edgar Hoover sensed the advantages of working with Angleton, he sent a senior agent, Sam Papich, to serve as liaison with the counterintelligence staff. For the grouchy FBI director, this was an expression of respect, if not warmth. Papich, of course, was under strict orders to disclose as little as possible to the CIA while defending the Bureau's prerogatives at every turn. In his first day on the new assignment, Papich was ushered into Angleton's office, a large corner room where a row of windows looked out on the Lincoln Memorial, or would have if the Venetian blinds had not been shut against the light. Angleton lit a cigarette. He asked Papich about a recent case that he said the Bureau had mishandled. Papich took exception to Angleton's tone. Angleton barked at him. Papich shouted right back, then got up and walked out. An unpretentious man from Montana, Papich wasn't going to back down from this Ivy League bully. Papich returned the next day. The men managed to be cordial in their meetings. Papich disclosed his fondness for fly fishing, and Angleton was glad to discourse on a favorite hobby. Angleton invited Papich to go fishing for brown trout in West Virginia one weekend. Papich marveled at how carefully Angleton surveyed the stream, stalked the riverbank for insects, and then crafted lures to imitate the species he found. Papich realized Angleton was a master fisherman. The two men became friends. From this modest beginning, Angleton's empire began to grow. He won authorization from Dulles to hire the necessary complement of secretaries, translators, typists, clerks, accountants, and the like. Within five years, the counterintelligence staff employed 171 people, 96 professionals, and 75 clerical workers. With this apparatus, Angleton would move the world. He had evolved from precocious youth to Cold War Mandarin, a functionary who impressed presidents and prime ministers. Once raw and ingenuous, he was now sleek and refined. 
His small, sculpted head, with each hair combed back, exposed his Edwardian integrity. As Burton Hirsch observed, when Angleton spoke, his mocha eyes shone, and as his lips parted, without warning, a grin would irradiate his hollow face. He was winning in every sense of the word. Zionist The land and people of Israel had captured Angleton's imagination. The revelations of the Nazis' extermination of the Jews during the war and his now regular visits to the newly created Jewish state had dissolved his inherited anti-Semitism. By the mid-1950s, Angleton liked nothing better than to leave the cramped office politics of Washington for the austere frontier of the Holy Land. On his visits, Angleton stayed in Ramat Gan, on the suburban coastal plain north of Tel Aviv, the home to many Israeli intelligence officers and diplomats. When he traveled up to the hills of Jerusalem, he favored the plush elegance of the King David Hotel. The King David had been Britain's headquarters during its control of Palestine, which is why Zionist commandos planted a bomb there in 1947, killing scores of people and hastening the British departure. The hotel's terrace offered Angleton a lovely view of the walls of the old city, the ancient seat of both Christianity and Islam that the Zionists claimed as their modern capital. He saw the sandstone parapets adorned with barbed wire. He saw history in the making. The Mossad had a new chief. Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion had replaced the furtive Reuven Shiloa with Isser Harrell, an outgoing man and intuitive spy who believed secret intelligence was key to the survival of a small nation surrounded by enemies. Born to wealthy parents in Tsarist Russia, his original name was Isser Halperin. His family fled to Lithuania after their vinegar business was confiscated by Russian revolutionaries, prompting Harrell's lifelong aversion to Marxism. Jim had enormous admiration for Isser, as he always called him, said Ephraim Halevi, the Mossad veteran. He often talked about Isser to me and to others as the epitome of Israel's success in collection and foreign intelligence operations. Angleton also bonded with Amos Menor, who served under Harrell as the chief of Shin Bet, Israel's equivalent of the FBI. In Jim's eyes, Isser was the ultimate intelligence officer, just as Amos was the ultimate security chief, foiling Soviet espionage and catching traitors and spies, Halevi said. Angleton took to grilling Menor about his work. It wasn't easy to persuade the anti-communist Angleton that we could be friends, Menor recalled. Even I was suspected by him that I was a Soviet spy. In Menor's apartment in Tel Aviv, Angleton talked late into the night while sipping whiskey. I didn't understand how a person could drink so much without getting drunk, Menor said. Angleton later admitted to Menor that he was examining him all the while to see if he might be a spy himself. Jim's initial attitude toward us was very wary, but later he became a devoted admirer of Israel from an American standpoint, said Memi Deshalit, an Israeli diplomat. Angleton changed his attitude toward us when he began to get to know people here and gradually grew stronger in his conviction that there was no great danger of Israel turning communist. Menor persuaded Angleton that Israel, with its population of immigrants from the Soviet Union and its East European satellites, was not a breeding ground for spies. Rather, it was an indispensable source for everything that interested the U.S. government about the communist world, from the cost of potatoes to plans for new aircraft and ships. Angleton returned to Washington edified by these adepts and changed in his thinking about the Jewish people. 
It was true he had no qualms associating with, even helping, anti-Semites like Ezra Pound, Valerio Borghese, and Eugen Dolman. It was true that he did not care for Jewish businessmen. He found them grasping. He abhorred Jewish communists for their amoral atheism. The Zionist Jews were a different story. Angleton did not think they were greedy or amoral. Far from it, in fact. The best of them were abstemious and principled, and they were nobody's victim. With enemies on every border, they were not tempted by compromise. The Israelis, he came to believe, were a model for the United States and the West. The anti-Semitic schoolboy had grown up to be an intuitive Zionist. Another source of Angleton's power was his friend Jay Lovestone, the former communist leader turned anti-communist operative. As executive director of the Free Trade Union Confederation, Lovestone had a secret budget from the CIA and a global network of contacts. Before long, Angleton and Lovestone effectively controlled what American labor unions had to say about U.S. foreign policy. With their respective influence in the labor movement and the intelligence community, wrote Lovestone's biographer, they formed a hidden power center bent on advancing a hard anti-Soviet line. They were particularly effective from 1953 to 1959, when John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State. Angleton and Lovestone meshed personally, given their unsentimental appreciation of power and dedication to the task at hand. Lovestone, an unmarried man, was romantically involved with fellow agent Louise Page Morris, but he had no family to speak of in New York City, where he lived. Three days a week, he traveled to Washington, and soon he was practically living at the Angleton's house in Arlington. He became close to Cicely, who understood her husband's devotion to him. He thought that Jay had struggled all his life to make his ideas prevail, Cicely said. Many were the times when Jay came to dinner, and he and Jim sat up talking into the night. Angleton's realm was growing when his Israeli friend Amos Menor delivered a timely package in April 1956, then his power became unparalleled. It started one fine spring morning in Warsaw, Poland. Viktor Grajewski, a journalist, went to see his girlfriend for their usual morning coffee. Grajewski, an editor at the Polish news agency, stopped at the offices of the Central Committee of the Polish Communist Party to see Lucia Baranowska. She, Jewish like Grajewski, was separated from her husband, a top party official, and knew what was happening around the office. He noticed, or she called his attention to, a red-covered booklet on her desk. It was emblazoned in Russian with the words, Top Secret, and Comrade Khrushchev's report to the 20th Congress of the CPSU. Grajewski knew the Soviet premier had recently given a speech hinting at criticism of Joseph Stalin, who had died in 1953. We heard that the United States had offered a prize of $1 million to anyone who could obtain the speech, he later recalled. Baranovska agreed to lend Grajewski the book. Grajewski put it in his pocket and went back to his apartment. On the Cult of the Individual and Its Consequences was the title, and Grajewski read it with mounting amazement. After the wartime propaganda about Uncle Joe, both in Russia and the West, its candor was shocking. Stalin had betrayed the legacy of Vladimir Lenin, Khrushchev declared, Terror was actually directed not at the remnants of the defeated exploiting classes, but against the honest workers of the party. Against them were made lying, slanderous, and absurd accusations. Mass repressions contributed to the spreading of unhealthy suspicion and sowed distrust among communists. It was incredible. 
The most reactionary sheets of the capitalist press might say such things about Stalin, but not the first secretary of the Communist Party. Gregevsky took the text to the Israeli embassy in Warsaw and gave it to the first secretary, Yaakov Barmore, who sent photographs of the document to Amos Menor in Tel Aviv. With permission from Prime Minister Ben-Gurion, Menor passed the speech to the Israeli embassy in Washington with a note that it be delivered personally to Angleton. Jim was in seventh heaven, Menor said. He asked my permission to publish the material. Menor consulted with Ben-Gurion, who agreed. On April 17th, Angleton gave the speech to Dulles. Two versions of the speech were released, one by John Foster Dulles at the State Department, who gave the text to the New York Times. The other version, edited by Angleton, consisted of the Times text with the addition of 34 paragraphs. Angleton inserted compromising remarks about the Chinese and the Indians that Khrushchev was known to have uttered at different times under different circumstances. Angleton thus embellished propaganda with truths that would reach tens of millions of readers in India and China. President Eisenhower was pleased, Dulles delighted. Obtaining Khrushchev's secret speech was one of the major intelligence coups of my tour of duty in intelligence, Dulles wrote in his memoirs. Ray Klein, chief of the Directorate of Intelligence, went further. He called it one of the CIA's greatest coups of all time. Others mistrusted Angleton's liaison with the Israelis. A few months later, in October 1956, the State Department learned that Israel was calling up its armed forces, including reserves, for unknown purposes. Robert Armory, an analyst in the Directorate of Intelligence, went to Dulles and called for an emergency meeting of the Joint Committee of all U.S. intelligence agencies. If war was going to break out in the Middle East, Armory wanted to make sure the president was informed. In the meeting, Angleton and Armory both spoke. Armory predicted the Israelis would strike Egypt. Angleton countered by assuring those in the room that his Israeli friends were simply bolstering their border defenses with Jordan. Armory scoffed at the idea and called Angleton a co-opted Israeli agent to his face. Armory was right, at least about Israeli intentions. Within days, the Israeli Defense Force had invaded Egypt's Sinai Desert, where they joined French and British forces who claimed to be protecting the Suez Canal from nationalization. They planned to decapitate the Egyptian government of Gamal Abdel Nasser and install a more cooperative regime. Eisenhower was furious. He had not been consulted, and he had no intention of compromising U.S. prestige to back up such a colonialist adventure— in the face of Washington's opposition, the Anglo-French-Israeli gambit was unsupportable. The Israelis had to surrender at the bargaining table what they had won on the ground. Angleton's confidence in his Israeli sources was unshaken. Fishermen The Angleton home on 33rd Road in North Arlington was unpretentious and comfortable. Jim and Cicely and the kids lived amid the clutter of his hobbies and her eclectic interior decorating, informed by her childhood in the deserts of Arizona. When Angleton was not at the office, he was clattering around in his workshop in the basement where he perfected silver tie pins and cufflinks as gifts for friends. On weekends, he spent long hours in the greenhouse working on his orchids. Angleton's family was far away. His parents still lived in Rome, where his father still ran his business— his sister Carmen pursued the intellectual and literary interests Jim might have pursued if he had not joined the CIA. She became close friends with the novelist Mary McCarthy. 
His younger sister Dolores married Luciano Guarneri, a painter. Brother Hugh, a diminutive, elegant man, had divorced his wife and returned to Boise, where he opened a gift emporium called Angleton's. Impeccably dressed in suit and tie, Hugh Jr. served as a kind of showroom director for an establishment overflowing with rare china, jewelry, and art objects. Among Angleton's closest friends was his new colleague, Cord Meyer, who lived in McLean, Virginia. On the weekends, the Angleton children, Jamie, Helen, and Lucy, played with the Myers's boys, Michael, Mark, and Quinton, while the adults smoked and drank. Cord Meyer had also gone to Yale, graduating after Angleton. After World War II, Meyer made his name as an eloquent student advocate of world government along the lines of the United Nations. When the Cold War extinguished that dream, he moved to the CIA to pursue a different vision of world government. In 1954, Alan Dulles persuaded him to take over the agency's International Organizations Division. In consultation with Angleton, Meyer orchestrated the agency's covert funding of labor unions, newspapers, magazines, TV stations, and Hollywood movies. With the help of poets, painters, and editors, these two intellectuals disseminated the CIA's preferred narratives around the world. Both Cord and his wife Mary came from families with money. The Myers lived comfortably in a farmhouse deep in the woods. The next driveway down the road led to Hickory Hill, the estate where Robert and Ethel Kennedy and their growing brood lived. Bob was a staff attorney on Capitol Hill, and his brother John was the junior senator from Massachusetts. The neighborhood was full of paths and treehouses, gardens, and hideaways. The Myers house in McLean, it was beautiful, said Peter Janney, another CIA kid who played with the Angleton and Meyer children. It was literally next door to Hickory Hill, and just a lot of woods back there, and space, a great place to be a kid growing up. Janney remembered the fathers in this crowd, all of them highly accomplished men. His father, Wister Janney, had gone to Princeton and won a Navy Cross as a fighter pilot before joining the CIA. Cord Meyer, who had lost an eye in combat, was not shy about his certainties. Angleton was perhaps the most intimidating of all of them. In Janney's young eyes, he resembled no one so much as Ichabod Crane in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. He was always obsessed with whatever he and Cord were talking about or laughing about, Janney recalled in an interview. You would never see Jim and Cord without both of them smoking and both of them having a drink in their hand. Those two things were extensions of their bodies. Janney was friends with the Meyer boys. As I got older, he said, Michael and I would sometimes browbeat Cord to take us fishing down along the Potomac. A couple of times Jim came along. Jim, of course, was a master angler. We would be casting these snag hooks out into the river to see if we could snag herring. When Michael and I were doing it, we were constantly being criticized by Cord and Jim. We could never do it right, no matter what we did. In this forest of towering masculine personalities, Peter found respite in the attentions of Mary Meyer, Michael's mother. Unlike Cord and Jim, Mary Meyer actually paid attention to Peter. She didn't live in another world like the dad's or even his own mom. You really felt she was there, Janney said. She was listening to what you were saying. She responded to what you were saying. You knew you were dealing with someone substantial who wasn't just blowing you off because you were a child. Mary Meyer was a different kind of presence, a female one, and the boy sensed it. She had been born Mary Pinchot, the daughter of Amos and Ruth Pinchot, an established and progressive couple in Pennsylvania. Amos Pinchot spent his family fortune on conservation of nature, 
He and his wife raised their two daughters, Mary and Tony, without regard for conventional expectations of women. Mary was an aspiring painter, and she made everyone around her feel good. Peter sensed she was especially close to Cicely Angleton, whom she took care of. I always had the impression that Cicely Angleton was somehow underwater, Janie said. By that, I mean she was not terribly happy with her family and her family life. Cicely was not socially ambitious. She avoided the Washington social circuit in favor of the company of a few good friends such as Mary. Mary's sister, Tony Meyer Bradley, and their friend Anne Truitt, all classmates from Vassar. Tony, the younger of the two Meyer sisters, had divorced and was now married to Ben Bradley, a well-bred wise guy from Boston who had just joined Newsweek's Washington Bureau. Anne was married to James Truitt, a hard-drinking Newsweek correspondent who collected Asian art. The Angletons, Myers, Truitts, and Bradleys grew close, bound by interests in work, culture, and art. Angleton was an entertaining friend, a man with a very fascinating romantic bohemian side, said one friend of Mary Myers. He sometimes played the piano after dinner. Cicely didn't always feel as smart as these accomplished people. In fact, she often felt exhausted, worn to the bone, as she put it. During the school year, she ran the carpool. In the summer, she arranged vacations in Arizona and northern Wisconsin, where the family had a home on the Brulee River. In the summer, they visited with families she had known since childhood, and Jim taught the kids how to cast a line and tie a fly. Those were the times Cicely liked the best. Caroline Marshall saw a different Jim Angleton than Peter Janney. Her family had a house on the Brule River where, as a little girl, she met Angleton for the first time. On lazy summer days, he taught her about the ways of the great brown trout, and she was fascinated. She felt welcomed by his attention and stimulated by his generous intelligence. Browns are vicious, atavistic creatures, Angleton said, gently letting the girl know about the gross realities of nature. They eat mice and frogs, baby chipmunks, their own kind. They're shy, he said, of the great browns. One feeding during the day and the mere suggestion of a shadow passes, gone. Angleton spoke with awe of these creatures. The sensitive little girl also heard his cunning. The patient game of waiting silent for the trusting quarry to expose itself, that is the game of fishing Jim Angleton played in the summer, Marshall later recalled how it might be said to resemble his other life with the CIA. For Marshall, one memory of Angleton endured. I saw him one night when I was a child, coming suddenly wet, slippery, and silent as a huge brown, coming in from the dark, trailing rain, his fedora pinched and dripping, pulled low over his eyes, a fisherman wholly unlike others. Cointel Pro at the office, Angleton was voracious for information. As he built the counterintelligence staff, he ordered Stephen Millett's special projects office to take over a sensitive program known by the codename Lingual. It would prove to be one of Angleton's greatest sources of power and perhaps his most flagrant violation of the law. Surveillance of the U.S. mail was first proposed by officials in the CIA's Soviet Russia division, and the Office of Security in February 1952. They wanted to scan the exteriors of a handful of selected U.S. letters mailed to the Soviet Union and to record the names and addresses of the correspondents. The goal was to provide live ammunition for psychological warfare, 
to identify possible agents with contacts in the Soviet Union and to produce documentary material and intelligence. The letters themselves were not opened. The program was approved in 1953. In 1955, Angleton asked to take over this limited mail surveillance program. In a memo to Dick Helms, he requested that the counterintelligence staff gain access to all mail traffic to and from the USSR. He recommended the raw information acquired be recorded, indexed, analyzed, and various components of the agency furnished items of information which would appear to be helpful to their missions. Most important, he proposed that the letters be opened and copied, something that had never been done before. The expanded version of the mail surveillance operation was approved in December 1955. Angleton rented a room at New York's LaGuardia Airport to house the necessary staff and equipment. They proceeded to process two to six bags of mail every day. Selected letters were opened with the old-fashioned kettle-and-stick method. The glue on the envelope was softened by the steam from a kettle, and the letter was pried open with the stick. The most skillful of the flaps and seals artists, as they were known, could open a letter in five to fifteen seconds. Under Angleton's direction, Lingual burgeoned. In 1956, 832 letters were opened. In 1958, more than 8,000 letters were opened. Angleton surely read many of them. J. Edgar Hoover had much the same idea about postal surveillance. In 1958, he sought authority for the Postmaster General to open the mail of communists and other people he regarded as a threat to the American way of life. When Angleton heard of the plan,